do something to wrestle with it. Brett's Preacher. Who's Preacher? Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. No, you haven't been. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Um, wonderful. The question is, how are you? Any, any news? Any, anything going on? Uh, business as usual. Uh, just because everybody else knows, you don't have to act like it's news to you. But what is news to you is that last time I checked, you were the number one most requested superstar return on the WWE.com poll for the 25th anniversary of Raw this coming Monday. When that poll first came out, you know, very quickly, it was Stone Cold number one, Undertaker number two, and you were number three. But within two hours, you took the lead and you have not looked back yet. Well, I got to thank this wonderful audience of ours for coming out in force and letting everybody know who they're most excited about seeing this Monday on the 25th anniversary of Raw. And so far, it seems like it's brother love. And we're fired up about that. We hope you tune in this coming Monday. Don't you dare miss it. It's the 22nd. You know what to do. USA Network, 8 o'clock Eastern. It's a three-hour Raw coming to you live from the Manhattan Center and the Barclays Center. And what do you know? Mr. Bruce Pritchard himself is going to be there as brother love. And uh, it's going to be pretty fun, man. So check it out this coming Monday. And we also want to thank our friends over at Squared Circle on Reddit. You didn't ask me anything. What was your experience like, Bruce? This is your second time doing that. Well, they asked me any and everything, including my size of my genitalia. So it's uh, always an experience over at Reddit. But uh, it's fun. It's fun. I enjoy answering people's questions and kind of getting out there and hearing what's going on and feeling the pulse, if you will, of our audience. All right, Bruce, it's time for What Happened When... The World Wrestling Federation ran the Royal Rumble 1998. All right, Bruce, I got to tell you, I've been looking forward to talking about this one for a long time. There's lots of things to talk about here. You guys are hotter than ever. You know, uh, Mike Tyson's coming in. Stone Cold's getting hot. Shawn Michaels is maybe in a bad spot here. Uh, Bret Hart's been ran out of town on a rail. There's just a lot going on here, and I want to dig into it long form. But I guess we should start at the beginning. Do you think that 1998 is the year that the Attitude Era really hit it big? I mean, I always talk about how 1997 was really my favorite year in wrestling. But it feels like 1998 is really when it sort of leveled up for you guys and WCW, right? 1997 is when it started. But, yeah, 1998 is when we just went pedal to the metal. And we've covered the Royal Rumble a lot here on the show, and we're going to do it again next week, too. And we're doing it because, of course, it's Royal Rumble season. Um, and we've got another Royal Rumble coming up next Sunday. But right before that, the day before, you can come see Bruce and I at the old ECW Arena right after NXT at the corner of Swanson and Rittner. You can pick up your tickets right now at pronounspal.com. It's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime show. You'll get Jake the Snake Roberts and then us back-to-back uh, they're going to have plenty of drink for you as well. It should be a rowdy good time over at pronounspal.com. 
Bruce, this is the 11th Royal Rumble at this point. Of course, the first one was 88, and we're going to cover that next week on the show. At that point, did you have a favorite Royal Rumble? Probably my favorite Royal Rumble match before 1988 was the one from the Alamo Dome in San Antonio that Austin won. And that would probably be my, my favorite that I was a part of. Before that, look, the best of all time was the 1992 Rumble where Flair won the championship. I think that was the best Rumble. But other than that, the one in uh, San Antonio. You and I are exactly alike. I think 92 and 97 are my absolute favorites. And I think a lot of that is just because of the breakout performances by both of those guys. I think that that you could argue those matches really made Steve Austin and Ric Flair to that WWF audience. Sure. And the fact that the uh, 1992 Royal Rumble was for the WWF championship, the match meant something. And from there, we, we went on to make the Rumble matches have a meaning. And the winner of that got the shot of the champion at WrestleMania. So the match was more than just, hey, I won the Rumble match. And I think that kicked off in 92 and gave a purpose to the Rumble match itself. We're going to have a little bit more coverage uh, for the Rumble in this episode than we might normally because it took place in Meltzer's backyard. It goes down on January 18th in San Jose, California. So as you're listening to this, it happened yesterday was the 20-year anniversary of this show. Uh, But Meltzer would report in his December 8th, 1997 Observer that they began advertising the Royal Rumble uh, that week. And before they ever ran their very first TV spot, about six weeks out, they had already sold 7,400 tickets for $236,000. That's before advertising it once. Uh, so the name, the Royal Rumble, was obviously a little bit of a draw, but it also shows you how hot the building or the business is when you're selling 7,400 tickets six weeks out before you start promoting it, right? The business overall was red hot with uh, WWF and Steve Austin really taking off. Um, Undertaker, Sean were red hot. And then you had Nitro, and they had the NWO, hotter than firecracker as well. Brett was brand new over there. So there was a lot going on in the business, and people were interested. There was just a lot of buzz about the wrestling business. You're exactly right, Bruce. There was a lot of buzz about the wrestling business. Let's break down how the business had sort of kicked off in a big way. Right after In Your House to Generation X, which is your most recent pay-per-view, it's between Survivor Series and here in 1997, uh, Raw does a 3.0 and Nitro does a 4.3. That's the night after the pay-per-view. The next week, everything's down. Nitro's down to a 4.1, Raw's down to a 2.7. But the next week, what do you know? There's a bit of a swing on December 22nd. Raw gets a 3.1 and Nitro gets a 3.5. A week later, that was the go-home edition, by the way, for Starcade 97. I just want to mention that when the rating went way down for WCW and everybody switched over to Raw, that's the show where they took apart the Nitro set and had the NWO take over the show for 25 minutes and people were channel changing like a motherfucker, weren't they, Bruce? Yeah, they sure were. It was something different, something they had never seen before. So kudos to them for that. Uh, December 29th, it was 3.6 on a Raw and then 4.6 for Nitro. That's the night after Starcade 97. And then we keep it going as we roll into the new year. The go-home edition of Raw before the Rumble 
does a 3.4 and Nitro does a 4.6. The night after the Rumble, which we're going to talk about here, Raw does a 4 and Nitro does a 4.4. So the buzz from the pay-per-view was obviously really, really big for both Starcade and for the Rumble because you guys go up a ton. You're talking 20% from the week before the Rumble to the night after. A lot of that is based around the curiosity of Mike Tyson, is it not? Man, Mike Tyson was red hot and he was newsworthy. So people were watching what Tyson was doing and very interested in what his next step was going to be in the sports or entertainment world. Now, what we're talking about here specifically, we should give you a backstory. And I guess we should mention here in February of 1990, Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson in Japan. And you guys had him scheduled, him being Mike Tyson, pronouns pal, to be a big part of a Saturday night's main event with Hulk Hogan and Macho Man. And then that sort of got changed, right? Right. It was actually the main event, which was a live show that was going to be held on a Friday night. So it was a big, big deal to have Tyson a part of that on NBC. Tyson was all in. He was, we have the, the footage of Mike Tyson actually talking about how scared he was to get into a wrestling ring with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage because he was like, Hulk Hogan to kill somebody, gets his hands on him, and Randy Savage, he's just crazy. So Tyson was excited. He had been a fan since he was a kid, and then the son of a bitch lost. And he and Don King decided that he didn't need to be on live television a week later refereeing a wrestling match. And we ended up getting Buster Douglas and all was right with the world. It absolutely was. Um, things were downhill for Tyson after this, and he ran into some trouble with the law and went to prison. And when he gets out of prison, he is still the hottest pay-per-view act around. He comes out and just destroys Peter McNeely in August of 95, and he has a couple of big years on pay-per-view before the super fight finally happens, and then they do a rematch. It's Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson 2. It breaks all pay-per-view records. It's June 28, 1997, and you probably remember hearing about it, even if you weren't a boxing fan. Mike Tyson bit the fuck out of Evander Holyfield's ear, and he was immediately banned from anywhere that would have him in a traditional area for boxing. So no more Vegas, no more California. And even when he would come back years later to fight Lennox Lewis, it would have to happen in Memphis, Tennessee. So he's looking for an opportunity to go earn at a high level. And Vince McMahon is looking to have a solution for the NWO and WCW passing him. So there starts to be some rumors that, hey, maybe this is a natural fit. With Tyson biting a guy and doing all kinds of crazy promos, maybe he's a good fit for wrestling. Whose idea was that? That was Vince's idea, and Vince thought that why not capitalize on the popularity of Mike Tyson? Regardless, he was controversial. He was unwelcomed in his sport. Nobody wanted to touch him. What better place for him than the World Wrestling Federation? Well, no doubt about it, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to prove to be successful, just as we saw from the uh, rating there. And we'll get into it a little more, I'm sure. Uh, we're also coming off the heels of the Montreal screw job, and, and we're not too far from it, so we might as well talk about it here. It looks like there's going to be a lawsuit, and there's lots of he said, she said, and all the dirt sheets about 
Vince sort of turning this into an angle and maybe that not sitting well with Bret Hart. Once things are done, you know, he's out of here. He's working for WCW now. What do you remember the conversations being like in the back and forth between Bret Hart and the company and Vince McMahon's take on all this? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of conversation with Brett and the company after the Montreal screw job, but <clears throat> I think Vince in a lot of ways was hoping he could put it behind him, but the audience wasn't about to allow him <laughs> to put it behind him. Vince would walk out and he had more heat than any of our heels in the building. Vince quickly realized that, well, damn it, you know, they, they see me, you know, all of a sudden now they see him as an owner and they didn't just see him as the play by play guy, which is how Vince saw himself. So why not capitalize on this and use the heat, the natural heat that Vince had? First of all, come out and tell the story. And when Vince did the whole famous Brett screwed Brett commentary and did that interview, he came across like a heel. But it, Vince truly believed exactly what he said. And the more that Brett kind of talked about it and continued on, it just that that flame wouldn't go out. As a matter of fact, it, it just fueled the fire. So Vince continued on. There was it was reported in The Observer that there was a conversation between Brett and Vince, and it was their first conversation. And the conversation was largely Brett saying that you should let Owen out of his contract and Vince saying he wasn't going to do it. Now, of course, I think we've touched on it here on the show. Vince did agree to let Jim Neidhart and Davy boy Smith go. Neidhart was only in on a per night deal. He let him go and bulldog was able to leave, but had to buy out his contract, but he got that worked out with WCW and he was out of there. Why did Vince, in your opinion, take a hard line on Owen? Because we wanted Owen. And frankly, again, the part that everybody forgets about, Owen did want to stay. Owen was upset about the whole situation. and Everybody was. There's no one involved in it that wasn't upset that it couldn't have been worked out in a different way. But in spite of books, in spite of Dave Meltzer and Brett and Martha and everybody else saying to the contrary, the Owen Hart, when he spoke to us, expressed his desire to stay with the company. He got a better deal, and Vince made him a better offer, and he stayed with the company. That's all there really is to it. Now, the rest of them can all say, and maybe Owen said things to them, to the contrary. To us, that was what he said, and he did say. There was um, a promo that Vince McMahon ran on Raw around this same time where it's just him on camera and he's standing in front of a backdrop and it says something like, we think you fans are tired of having your intelligence insulted. And he does this speech about good guys versus bad guys. Whose idea was that? And where was it shot? How many times did it take? What can you tell us about this promo? That was Vince's idea because he was trying to, basically blur the lines and the fact that all of a sudden he had been thrust into a talent position and a position to where people saw him as a heel. He 
he wanted to blur those lines even more. And you had a, a an anti-hero in Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was the most popular wrestler by far, I think, in the world at that time, that was in any other era would have been the biggest heel in the company, yet he was the most popular guy in the business. So Vince just had this thing, well, you need to explain it to him, why Stone Cold is so popular, because the lines have been blurred. It was it was like a State of the Union address from the owner of the company. You'd never heard from him before. There's um, a lot of talk about Vince's change in direction at this point, too, because he's starting to get edgier, I guess you might say, but he's also sort of acknowledging what you just said, that you know, we're blurring the lines a little. We had Mark Miro do a promo on Raw where he called Sal Sincere a jobber and a jabroni. We had Shawn Michaels playing strip poker, smoking a cigar, and drinking Jack Daniels. And we had Goldust flashing Vader. And Sable was wearing a potato sack and taking off the sack and having on these really big high heels and the skimpiest swimsuit possible. And Phil Mushnick is crucifying you guys in the newspaper. Is there any sort of internal debate about this is too far, but that's not? Do you remember there being one thing in particular that you guys were trying to put together that there was a lot of debate about? No, not one thing in particular, because during this time, Vince Vince's feeling was if they want TNA and they want sex, well, then let's give them sex appeal. And if they want violence, then let's give them more aggression. Um, with that, again, the key things was we weren't giving them sex. We were giving them sex appeal. You weren't giving them violence. You were giving them aggression. So all of this encompassed the attitude. And he... He just hung on that, that whole, you know, we're, we're going to give them attitude. We're going to give them, if that's what they want, we're going to give them all of it and then some so that they can, we can satiate their appetite for whatever it is they're looking for. You want the most beautiful women in the world? Tune in here. You want the most action in the world? Tune in here. No matter what it was, we wanted to deliver it in the two hours of Raw. It feels like uh, we haven't talked about him in maybe a year, really. But Phil Mushnick was like public enemy number one at the WWE for a long time. What conversations did you ever have with Vince about Phil? Oh, God, we had plenty of conversations about Phil. Phil just had a vendetta against Vince McMahon and the WWF for whatever reason. It wasn't his form of entertainment. He didn't get it. He didn't like it. So he took it upon himself to let everyone know that read his column in the post that he was against it and what filth and trash that wrestling was. And if you were a wrestling fan, then you were lower than dirt in Phil Mushnick's eyes. And how could anyone allow their children to watch this disgusting filth and this product that is put out by this madman, Vince McMahon? I don't know what Phil Mushnick's problem was or is or anything like that, but it wasn't. He didn't come from a point of a journalist. He didn't come from a point of an objective viewer at all. He came like someone that had a vendetta and someone that was trying to uh, – that had an axe to grind. I don't, and I don't know what his problem was. To this day, I don't know what his problem is. 
did Vince ever try to schedule a meeting or call him or have any sort of discussion, or was he just taking the shots and never responding to him directly? No, initially Vince did try to reach out to uh, Mushnick and say, I don't know you, never met you, what's what's your problem, and can we talk? You know, I mean, like two men. And Mushnick refused, and Mushnick would basically do his dialogue in his in his columns every Sunday and Wednesday, whenever the hell they were. And um, that's when Vince said, okay, you want to play? You know, you've got your, you've got your newspaper. I've got a national platform or a worldwide platform to get my message out. Is it true that Phil Mushnick is the person who came up with the term degeneration X? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Um, no, not that I know of. I really don't know. Why? Does he claim credit for it? Meltzer gave him credit for it and said that he believes in one of his columns it was the first time that the term was used to describe. At the time, he's probably not describing the band of misfits, you know, Triple H and Shawn Michaels and China. He was probably just talking about the company as a whole. He may have, but, I, I mean, I remember how we basically named Degeneration X was off of a Bret Hart promo calling Sean and, and Hunter a bunch of degenerates. And you you you, re, you don't represent Generation X, you're Degeneration X. And it was like, that's good. But it was, it was off of a promo. Uh, speaking of promos, there's a pretty famous promo that I think most everybody my age remembers, and it's when you've got Shawn Michaels cutting a promo against Owen Hart. And he's referring to him like he's a turd that just won't flush. And he calls him, you know, a stanky nugget or whatever the deal is. And it inspired fun stuff later in the year when they're doing impersonations and impressions of Owen uh, with uh, Jason Sensation. And he's screaming, I am not a nugget. But what do you remember about the nugget promo? Because that's the first time anything like that has ever been done in wrestling as far as I know. Man, you can credit 100% Vince McMahon. I can see and remember him giving Sean that promo to this day and talking about when you get there, you, you know how like when you take a shit, you flush it. And there's always that one little nugget going around the bowl and you flush it again and it comes right back up to the top and you just can't get rid of that nugget no matter how many times you flush it keeps coming back up to the top and you put toilet paper on top of it and you try and flush it down and it won't go away it's just a shitty nugget and that promo was born but I remember Vince with the finger and doing the whole nugget around the bowl and everything it was hilarious. And uh, Owen loved that promo. There was um, there was a time here where Austin has the Intercontinental title, and he was supposed to. Let me. I'll just read it from the Observer. In the case of Austin, the original plan was for him to lose the title, Intercontinental, 
at the December 7th pay-per-view to Rocky Maivia. When he balked, a compromise was worked out, or instead, he got over his defiant anti-establishment role. Maivia got the title, although the reasons clearly made no sense, and Austin didn't have to do a job. As best we can tell, there was no heat regarding what ended up happening, as everyone involved in the decision-making process was comfortable with the compromise, although the end result was a storyline that made no logical sense in regard to Maivia ending up with the title. So I guess from Austin's side, the plan is, hey, you're about to have me win the fucking Royal Rumble and then win the world title. Why would I lose here? Which I guess makes sense. But is this sort of a sign of things to come that Austin have start? Is this the first time you remember Austin sort of using some creative control and some influence to get a finish changed? But it was, but it wasn't Austin. It was Vince. Okay. It was Vince saying, God damn. We're going all this way with Steve. There's got to be a way to get the bell off them without beating him. That was Vince. So, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a lot easier to say, you know, it's like, oh, Sean and, and Steve and all these, they refused to do a job. That was Vince that didn't, you know, he booked it. <laughs> you know what I mean? He got us there. But then when it's time, it's like, okay, we got to get, get the title off him. Yeah, but goddamn, I can't beat him. So he would come up with ways, and a lot of times you're right. It wouldn't make sense when you look back at, especially when you look back at it 20 years later, it makes even less sense than it did then. What was Maivia's reaction? Obviously, he's young in the game. He's only been here for a year, but now he's getting the Intercontinental title belt back, and he's getting it from the top guy, but he's not wrestling him for it, and he's not beating him on pay-per-view. He's just being handed the belt. Everybody's supposed to be okay with that. He had heat, and it put heat on him that that's how he got the championship. So to him, he's happy to be in the game. He's happy to be a part of the story, and that's heat. So to the audience, it was like, that guy doesn't deserve it. He didn't beat anybody. Well, there had to be some heat from the boys who are used to the, the you win them in the ring and you lose them in the ring, right? I mean, was, was this okay with everybody, all the old school folks in the back? I, no, for the most part, I think everybody wanted to have a match and have, you know, have an actual match and a winner or a loser. Even if it's a screw finish, it doesn't matter how you get there. Right. Vince didn't want to. Vince knew where he was going with Steve, and once he he had Tyson in there, knew where he wanted to go with Steve at WrestleMania. That that's not what he wanted to do. Was the original idea to have him drop it at the uh, in your house, the Generation X, and Vince changed it? I think that was probably the general consensus for all of us. It may not have been for Vince. Right. You know what I mean? Right. To, to Vince, it's like, oh, we'll get the title off of him there. Not necessarily, we'll beat him for the title there. We'll get the title off of him. That sort of happened around this same time in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts as well. Shawn Michaels had not defended the European title. So in storyline, Sergeant Slaughter tells him that uh, he's going to have to defend it tonight. And the opponent, of course, is Triple H. So he just basically gives the European title to Triple H here. Is this another way to just get heat by awarding Same a reason. belt? Yeah. But but not but not only that, because the guy that was gonna beat Sean was gonna be Steve. And he didn't want Sean after the, the whole thing with Brett, he didn't want Sean losing anywhere between then but, and yeah, WrestleMania. WrestleMania. Right. And you got all this, you know, we, we had it covered with Undertaker. 
because you got Kane, you got a lot of story and a lot of Gaga that you can you can put around that. But then Vince was like, "Why?" You know, we even talked about you know Sean taking the the European Championship all the way and never losing that. But then it was like, "Well, God, what do we do with it?" Isn't it interesting though that we're talking about this huge company? And we've got belts on guys, but no real plan as to how to get them off. It does show you that some of the thinking, because we've done some older episodes from the late 80s as opposed to the late 90s, the late 80s, you start to get to the end and then work backwards. It feels <laughs> like that has changed a little bit here because now you're like, well, fuck, that won't work. Just take it off him. Yeah. Well, not, o- not only that, you may have you may have plans for like three to six-month program where you have all of these matches getting up to the big blow off and somebody can say something in a meeting at three o'clock in the afternoon of a live show. Oh, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be interesting? Nobody would ever call this guy winning the title tonight. I love it. And your three months and all of your marketing, everything you have just goes flushed right down the toilet because somebody said, nobody will ever call this tonight. You're right. They won't because that's not where we're going. (laughs) And then you do it for a pop that night and you're stuck with, what do I do next? And you got to rewrite everything to try and get either get back on track or come up with a new storyline. Of course, Meltzer's pretty critical of this decision to have Sean just drop it to his buddy, Triple H, and instead not make another guy like Ken Shamrock or Owen Hart or Dude Love or Vader or whoever. Um, was there any sort of, because, you know, there is lots of second-guessing and negativity and naysayers and all that in wrestling. Was there a lot of heat on Sean for sort of, quote-unquote, looking out for his buddy and the belt going to Triple H instead of somebody else? Absolutely, because that's what the perception was. And, and Sean and Hunter and everybody else fed into that perception and let everybody know, you know, whether it was true or not. If, if things went their way, I got that done. Oh yeah. You know, I talked to the old man and I got it all fixed when it may have just been the old man or it may have been someone else. And people fed into it and people bought into it and believed it. And that's what, that's what they went and, and told the people out on the West Coast that were sitting behind a typewriter typing things up. Well, then it must be true. Meltzer wrote, we aren't clear whether it was a Michael suggestion to give the belt to Helmsley so he could avoid doing the job when asked to drop it or the promotion simply recognizing the problems inherent in asking Michaels to do a job. And coming up with a scenario as a way to get the belt onto somebody else without ruffling Michael's feathers at this point, coming in the wake of Austin not doing a job when he originally asked, when he was originally asked, isn't clear. So obviously Meltzer is doing the math here, and here's what he writes. For those keeping score, that makes Michael's nine championship runs in the WWF, which includes three world titles, three intercontinentals, two tag team, and one European He's done exactly two jobs to drop them, both in situations where it was a short known turnaround, which was the WWF title to Sid and the Intercontinental title to Marty Jannetty until he got the respective belts back. In the excuse category, there was one career uh, ending knee injury. There was walking out after a fight claiming unsafe working conditions. There was a breakup of a team rather than dropping a tag title. 
There was quitting the promotion. There was one stemming from a concussion in an out-of-the-ring skirmish. And this was the most creative. That makes him either the most clever or the least professional champion of our era, not to mention arguably the most talented to keep getting titles with his track record. Is this a fair criticism from Dave Meltzer? I think that it's from the outside looking in. Yeah, but again, when you are there and you're dealing with the day-to-day and you're dealing with these personalities and you're dealing with injuries and you're dealing with everything else that we had to deal with, no, it's not fair. Let him go run. I, I would love for Dave Meltzer to invest all the money that he's made being an expert these years, because he's the smartest man in the business, to invest his money, start a wrestling promotion with who he thinks is the greatest draw in the Tokyo Dome with his 42 stars, and let's see how he handles the personalities with who he thinks should go over, and let him do it for a year, and let me and let me critique his shit. Well, you don't have to get hot about it. The question was... Do you think Shawn Michaels is the most clever or least professional champion of our era? I think he's one of the best champions of our era. I think he's one of the best performers of our era. And a lot of the decisions you still have to, regardless of the decision, it goes back to Vince. Vince is making the decision. So if you want to go and say, okay, whose decision is it? Where does the fault lie? It goes back to Vince McMahon, and he'll happily take that. Someone pretty smart recently told me the entire business is a work to the audience of one man. In a lot of respects. Yeah. Um, is it fair to say at this point, and we're talking late 97, early 98, not only do you have all the, he didn't want to drop a, the, the belt at WrestleMania 13. So he faked an injury. He's thrown a temper tantrum and walked out on the company before. Now he's running DX and he just ran Shawn Michaels, or he just ran Bret Hart out of town with the screw job. Do you think at this point Shawn Michaels is the most hated man in wrestling as a shoot and a work? He was up there. But but also Shawn had his fans, too. There, there were people in the locker room that loved him as well. Uh, here's some other things going on at the time that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. Uh, from the observer, little rock was even worse. According to several reports, the undercard for the show at the Barton Coliseum was terrible. And even the densest marks were getting restless about the poor quality of matches and particularly a terrible match with Kane and chains and an undertaker versus Rocky Mavi, a casket match that only lasted two minutes due to the undertaker being injured and having high blood pressure. In addition, fans were upset because the card that was taking place was completely different than the lineup that was advertised, and no explanations were given. The scheduled main event was to be Ken Shamrock with Danny Hodge, one of the greatest real wrestlers who has ever lived and is also a top wrestler in the area during the 60s and 70s, as well as the NWA World Heavyweight Champion or Junior World Heavyweight Champion as his manager for one night only against Hunter Hearst Helmsley with Shawn Michaels in his corner. This card, as announced, drew 6,449 fans. We're not clear if what was going to happen as we received a report that Helmsley was going to face Dude Love in the main event, but that may not have been correct since Dude had fractured ribs and was only supposed to make appearances. But the fans had no idea that was even going to take place or that anything had been changed, and my impression is that the show was stopped when Michaels and the rest of DX walked out 
and that neither Shamrock nor Hodge actually came out for the main event before the show ended. Sean and Helmsley came to the ring and began riling up the crowd that was already mad about the poor undercard, and naturally, they became target practice again. And when something hit Michaels, he told the crowd that they had just lost their main event and walked out with Helmsley and China. Fans, thinking it was just part of the act, didn't react right away. After several minutes, DX failed to come back to the ring, no opponent for Helmsley appeared, and the ring announcer said that they had refused to come out and the show was over. At this point, a real riot started, with chairs and whiskey bottles being thrown everywhere, including at police trying to get the crowd out of the building. The situation got so bad that the police had to spray the building with tear gas to get the fans outside. I want to read that again. The situation got so bad that the police had to spray the building with tear gas to get the fans outside. Several fans tried to get refunds and were unsuccessful, and at that point, a second riot took place in the parking lot before the police broke it up. At least one fan was rushed to the hospital, although there didn't appear to be any serious injuries to fans either night. The incident was so out of hand that it was reported on the news later that night with at least one report giving the impression that the WWF would never be allowed back in the city, although this is happening at a deadline really too soon to figure out if that is actually going to unfold locally. The reports were that the live event folks pointed the finger directly at Michaels for the problem starting, although the behavior of the fans and the actual real problem, but unlike in Memphis, the real problems didn't occur until the fans realized they weren't going to see the main event was actually them trying to get heat from the crowd. What do you remember about the Arkansas show and the Memphis show seemingly getting so fucking out of hand that the police had to use tear gas? I don't know if the police used tear gas. That may have been something that was reported by someone that was there. Um, I wasn't there, obviously, for either one of them. But, you know, hearing the reports of everybody that the crowd did get out of hand and that they were throwing so much stuff that they did stop the shows. And from the promotion standpoint on that side, yeah, was heels going out to what? Get heat. And they got so much heat that people were throwing so much shit that they couldn't control it. And when you have that kind of a situation, you can't continue on with the show. So, again... For people that weren't there, and I wasn't there, neither was Dave Meltzer, and neither was probably anybody in the news agency that was reporting on it. From the reports that I got from people that were there, yeah, the heels went out, cut a promo. People started throwing things that were uncontrollable. The security and the police that were in the building could not contain it and couldn't stop the people from doing that. At that point, it's a danger for the talent. It's a danger for the patrons. So the show was called. Both respects. Um, there's a whole article written at ProWrestlingStories.com about this if you want to see the picture. The rumor and innuendo that there was no tear gas is bullshit. I'm looking at a picture of tear gas. And I'm also seeing reports from people who were there saying that there were fights everywhere, chairs were being thrown, and fires were being started in the crowd. Okay, so again, how uh, the promotion then... <laughs> Aren't you going to call the cops in if there's fights and people throwing things all over the place and your security can't control it? You're going to call the police in. You're going to call a riot squad in to come and get control of a riot. So if the audience is uncontrollable, and again, it's a fictitious 
sport where the guys go out and yes, they're going out to get the crowd riled up. They got riled up beyond control and it got beyond control for the people that were there to control it to do their jobs. Should Sean, by the way, I feel like I should mention that when I said Sean was hit by something from a fan, I sort of censored what Meltzer wrote. He wrote, Sean was hit with a piece of paper. I don't believe that that's what he would have responded to. I'd like to not believe that. Maybe that's the case. But Jim Cornette has a different view than you. He writes, Normal Night in Little Rock for Mid-South Wrestling, another case of Shawn Michaels being a pussy, causing shit. Okay, well, that that's just silly, okay? Because, again, when you put the people, the crowd, in danger, when you have families there and people are throwing things and kids can get hit, and different things like that, that's not a good environment, and that's not safe. And that's something but, that if the people there can't control it, you know, they go out and they get heat nowadays. And, yes, it was a different time. And, yes, in Mid-South, and, yes, back in the early 80s, things like that, that that was a great night if you had a riot. My <laughs> God, you know what I mean? My God, you did your job. Holy shit, man, we had a riot five nights in a row. <laughs> Man, that's what you, that's what you lived for. Here's my question though. Can you not even remotely agree that Shawn Michaels should have went out there and done the main event? Let's have that guy arrested. Let's throw him out of the building. Let's, let's punish whoever threw whatever. But to just say, you just lost your fucking main event and leave. That's when shit got bad. Well, no, no, no. And again, we don't know that's when shit got bad. That's what reported when shit got bad. Here's my point. I could see Sean saying that and, and walking out with the full intent to coming back. At that point, if it escalated in the crowd and it got to a point they couldn't control it, yes, I would stop the main event and I wouldn't send anybody else out there. Again, we don't know because we weren't there. But that that's what we were told, and that's how it was presented to us. Of course, by the time it gets down through the media and everybody else, the more sensational story is put the heat on the promotion because all we did, we threw a paper cup and it hit Sean and he said, no more main event. And they all left the building. Come on. Does that make sense? No. And, and again, there, there's probably the real truth somewhere in between all of that. But at the same time, you have to make hard decisions. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll never forget where the, um, Athletic commissions would come in and say, I'm going to stop the match because a guy got a hard way or something. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to stop this card right now. Go ahead. Go out there and do it. Meltzer also wrote, speaking of Michaels in Chicago on December 26th, what happened was Michaels got really racial with a black fan calling him among other things we can print a monkey and jumping around like a monkey. He said he wouldn't wrestle unless the guy was thrown out. Some thought this was all an angle as the guy was thrown out. But he came back after the match, and his girlfriend, who Michaels was also insulting, was brought backstage. Do you remember Sean, like taking great pride in stirring fans up like this? In stirring fans up, he took a lot of pride in stirring fans up. You made a face when I read that story to you. You have a response? I, I've never because I've never heard of it, and it just sounds so silly when when you read these things from somebody that wasn't there and you're here and there and he's getting it reported from somebody that was in the third row of their perception of things and it's just I, again i've never never seen it never heard of that and and it just sounds silly to me well you say it sounds silly but two weeks prior to this he's eating bananas on raw and doing the dx angle 
Yeah, eating bananas, and then they slipped on a banana peel. That was the finish. That was actually the finish. Bruce. You're going to sit here and, and try to act like Sean wearing Farouk's hat, eating a banana, was just to set up a finish, and there was nothing racial about it. This is at a time when people are destroying the NOD's locker room and they're blaming other people and saying they're racist and yada, yada, yada. And now you're going to act like that wasn't racist, even though you even said it on TV that it was racist. Tell me what the finish was of that after we did the whole banana thing. Tell me what it was. It was slipping on a banana peel, which is why we had the banana. Now, you jumping to that is you then interpreting it how you want to interpret it. How it was laid out was, hey, this old finish. Everybody says, I know what we'll do for this finish. <laughs> Let's slip on it. You know, the uh, baby face slips on a banana peel. Okay, so who scripted uh, somebody to say that something was racist? Because we we fans that probably Vince that. McMahon. Okay. And now, when when we say two weeks later that he is parading around in front of a black guy acting like a monkey, that that's not the same thing, and, or you're saying it didn't happen. I'm saying I didn't see it happen, and I never heard about it. That's what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying you're reading it in a report that usually 70% of the things that are written by the guy that you're reading from are incorrect. That's all. The uh, report from Melser would say, from later reports, we understand that Helmsley got something thrown that hit him in the eye so hard that his eye started swelling badly. And Chada was also hit with something in the back uh, so hard that she was also hurt. Although Michaels didn't get nailed with anything worse than paper, when Helmsley got nailed, he took it upon himself to call the show off, and Shamrock never even made an appearance. Um, well, Sean doesn't have the authority to call off the show. The agent called off the show who was running the show. At one point when leaving the arena, rowdy fans began pounding on the rental car driven by Charles Skaggs, a.k.a. Flash Funk, and Charles Wright, a.k.a. Kama Mustafa. And they got out of their cars, which nearly started an incident that would have benefited nobody. But as it turned out, they were talked to by other wrestlers into getting back in and leaving the area. Michaels and company needed a police escort to get out of the parking lot. All in all, there were 13 arrests, mainly for misdemeanor alcohol charges, including several who were underage and another for disorderly conduct. So when, when a report like this comes back to the office, What's the office's reaction? What's Vince, what's Vince McMahon think about a report like this? Well, first of all, calm the fuck down. Um, as far as you guys, you know, goddamn, what the fuck are they doing to get that much heat? And there's, there are those, you know, the old school that that was a good night in the town if you had a riot. Goddamn, they had the riot squad called. It was fucking awesome. In 1997, 1998, that's not awesome. And it, it just was a changing of the times. And it just made, you know, evaluate, okay, for the house shows. And the problem, too, in a lot of places, that was the norm. In Little Rock, Arkansas, in New Orleans, Louisiana, in Shreveport, in Tulsa, man, the security and all those guys, again, a riot was a good night. So it was different, different expectations in different parts of the country. 
did, did alcohol and I mean, obviously alcohol played a big role here because that's what the majority of the charges were. Did alcohol and its presence at a WWF show, was there a conversation about that? We got to have less alcohol, restrict alcohol, anything like that? I think this was during the time, uh, yes. I mean, that, that is one of the things that every arena is going to bring back and look at. There was the whole deal in the NFL at the time, right about the same time too. I think it was the New York Jets where they, that's when they started cutting off alcohol sales at a certain time in the uh, stadium. But I'm sure that probably had a lot to do with it. It's unfortunate. And it, it was a part, it was a part of our business that, you know, like you said, man, that shit. Bill Watts would be happy as hell to have a riot in every one of his towns every night. There's some, wasn't. there's some interesting uh, Ken Shamrock news in the Observer around this time. Allegedly, uh, a show was supposed to go down for the UFC on December 21st from Yokohama, which was going to be Shamrock versus Takata. And allegedly, the WWF and Shamrock agreed to terms, which would have allowed uh, a $150,000 payoff for Ken to go in and fight Takata. And he signed the contract on the 4th and starts training immediately. Uh, with a real high intensity camp, but six days later gets word that Takata has not agreed to do the show and it's all canceled. So the next night they fly Shamrock to Lowell Mass and he's back on the WWF train at that point. It feels kind of weird for Vitz in the middle of a contract to let a guy out. Why was Shamrock given the green light for this Takata match that didn't happen? Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, uh, Meyerwitz mm-hmm. at the time. This is right before we were maybe more seriously considering purchasing the UFC. Um, Bob and Vince got along and, and Bob had an idea. He needed some help and asked for the services of Shamrock. It was everybody was making money off of the deal and Vince agreed to it. So sometimes, you know, Vince would look at some of those things on a case-by-case individual basis. All right. Thanks for the non-answer. December 15th. Well, no, I mean, it was just a deal. It was a deal with, with, uh, with Meyerwitz and Takata backed out. But that's the only reason he did it was because Meyerwitz asked him. But my question is, if, if Shamrock goes over there and gets embarrassed in that day, what value does Ken Shamrock have? Wins and losses don't matter like they used to. Well, no, hang on. And, and But at the same time, I'll, I'll tell you the same thing that I told King Mo when Bellator spent all this money on King Mo and Dixie was so happy to have King Mo as a part of the TNA. And King Mo's very first fight with Bellator, he got knocked out. And I called him right after because everybody was in the dumps and, and Bjorn Rebney was beside himself because their prize star, the guy they wanted to build the promotion around, it just got knocked out. I said, this is the greatest thing that could ever happen to him. And, and, and I said, have Mo come out and cut a promo that he was never knocked out. That he was going to kill the guy and he, he slipped and he got a decision, but that'll never happen again. And I said, just move the fuck on. I said, for me in the wrestling world, the fact that he got knocked out helps me so much with King Mo's the perception of King Mo and how I can make him a heel in our world. 
because he can talk about how he's the greatest fighter in the world. Ken Shamrock going over there and losing in that world, coming back and turning him heel with that is easy. He wins. He's a hero. It doesn't matter. I like it. Thanks for the old school knowledge, Broham. Every now and again, you redeem yourself with a story like that. Well, it's, it's, I, it's a work. So if, if, if our business is a work to everybody else, when we go to your business, if we lose, it was a work. Did nobody ever tell Bill Watts that when he had a policy that if you got beat up in a bar, you were fired? I mean, they could yeah. just walked in and said, just turn me heel. To work. Yeah, exactly. No shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, if you're a heel, we got nowhere to go. So <laughs> you're fired. But if you're a baby face, turn me heel. Goddamn. Uh, on the- I mean, if that were the case, I wouldn't have been, a, I wouldn't have had much work anywhere because I had my ass kicked everywhere. Wait, I thought you were like a seven time karate black belt hall of famer. Okay, Dave Meltzer exaggerating now. I'm a three time black belt hall of fame, damn it. I thought it was at least up to four. Well, no, I'm, you see, what you're confused with, I'm a seventh-level black belt, <laughs> but three-time black belt Hall of Fame. So seven times three, carry the 21? Ten. Yes! 21-time karate world champion. Ever. Yeah, undefeated. Top five. Except for that one top, night in Nuevo Laredo. Top five all-time tag team champion by yourself. Ever. Uh, December 15th. You guys are in Durham, and uh, it's announced that Shawn Michaels and Undertaker is going to be your Royal Rumble main event. Was there ever another main event considered for the Royal Rumble? Not that I remember, because we we had to finish up. You know, the, the Undertaker Shawn deal was kind of left open, and it was a way to get to where we wanted to go with Kane and Undertaker Mania, and it was also some place where nobody was really getting beat. Yes, Undertaker got buried, but it took 42 people. And uh, it got all of our stories covered. Uh, on that same Raw, we see Vince do an interview where he's demanding that Owen Hart stop doing run-ins. And Owen does a promo saying that Vince screwed his brother, and he's tired of Vince telling everyone what to do. And uh, he's after Shawn Michaels for personal reasons. He doesn't care about the belt. Why was there never a big payoff? with an Owen Hart, Shawn Michaels main event. Because we, and that was something that we always fought for and just kind of never got because it moved on to other things. You go from, from Shawn and Brett in November to Shawn and Taker. And then you're going to, to Shawn and Steve. Unfortunately, there was no room. Well, to get that Owen, Owen match in there. Why wouldn't you have done it at DX or at Royal Rumble? Why couldn't you have done Sean versus Owen at Royal Rumble? Well, I dare say the Undertaker versus uh, Sean is a much bigger attraction. Well, if we're just going to say a bigger attraction, then you would do Roman Reigns versus uh, John Cena every month, right? Depends. But no, but no, I'm saying I'm saying from where we were, you got to understand where we were. In in November, where, again, where getting there, Taylor. we had to get, and then you've got Sean, who got hurt in January. you got to get to Steve. And there was thought afterwards, hey, man, you go back afterwards, that's somebody for Sean to work with after WrestleMania. Never got there. I mean, you're doing promos about it right here 
in December. I understand that, but we just couldn't, you, you, you couldn't get to it. You couldn't get to it logically because you, now you've got, and here's the other thing. How that, are you logically? How, how, log- how is it logically Undertaker Sean instead? That's what I'm struggling with. Well, you go back to the whole thing even before Survivor Series with Brett and, and, uh, Sean and Sean hitting Taker with the chair and none of that was ever resolved. So this was, this was it. And this was to take Taker on to the whole, uh, you know, you had the hell in a cell and all that wonderful shit. So it, it never really was resolved. You know what I mean? We needed a bigger blow off. We needed to, that clear cut to go ahead and, have Taker go for something other than the championship and go after Kane. And you had to get, you know, okay, y'all may explain it now because I'll explain the whole Tyson thing right now because that's where it all changed. It all changed the next night too. No, I get that the night after Rumble. I guess I always wondered, and obviously I'm a fucking mortgage guy. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I would have had Undertaker, and Sean in a casket match at in your house, degeneration X. And I could have done something there with Owen or the next night on raw with Owen. And then it's Owen and Sean at Royal rumble. And now we're on our way. Owen and Sean would not have drawn as much as undertaker and Sean would have at the bigger event. And again, to do it in December, it wouldn't, it's, it's, one of the lowest bought pay-per-views and we wanted to do it at one of the big ones at, at the Royal Rumble with Undertaker and Sean. So you build to one of the big ones and that, that was the reason. And then everything, I mean, our whole world turned upside down. See, it's like, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about, yeah, we had shit booked out three months. Dude, the Tyson story got written the next night after the Royal Rumble. All right, we'll get there. On the December 15th edition of Raw, the nation is doing an interview uh, saying that the hour's up and we demand our belt, and then we see Austin doing a promo from a bridge, and he says that he's thrown the damn belt off the bridge into a river. This is one of the more memorable moments of Raw is Austin throwing the belt off the bridge into the river. I know we've talked about it a little bit before on the show, but this is something that I assume Russo and, and Austin shot the night before. Uh, this one, Vince and I shot the night, uh, yeah, the night before. Or actually, uh, this may have been a tape show that we shot, uh, like we did a live raw. And I think this was a tape show that we went and shot it after the live raw that aired on the tape show. If I remember correctly, I know one of them we did like that. They do uh, a main event on that Raw with the Legion of Doom taking on Shawn Michaels and Triple H. China interferes, and then afterwards, the New Age Outlaws come help DX, and they all destroy the Legion of Doom, and they shave Hawk's head. Uh, I've been wanting to do a Legion of Doom show here on the show, but uh, they haven't won a poll. Maybe sometime this year. How was Hawk with having his head shaved like this? That was Hawk's idea, and he he's the one that suggested it. And threw it out there, and we we liked it. With uh, dark matches around this time, you're seeing Undertaker working with Triple H in a casket match, but it's not getting awesome reviews. How difficult is a casket match? To to uh, it feels like a very difficult story to tell sometimes because you've got this big goofy prop, and instead of there being a one two three, it's closed the lid. 
Yeah, because traditional finishes, you don't have any false finishes. Right. The false finishes all are around the, the casket, and it's not around a, a big move in a one, two, and a half. It's, oh, my God, he's got him in the casket. Will the casket door come down on him? So it's just a little bit more difficult. I think that some gimmick matches like that, it's hard to make them exciting. Uh, the next week is the Lowell, Massachusetts show. We've talked a little bit about already where uh, Sean's out here in his um, jock straps, his, uh, his, un- his unawares, and uh, Goldust and Luna are out here reading Twas the Night Before Christmas. Sean asks the lady in the crowd to uh, flash her chest, and she does. You guys are off the rails three days before Christmas. What was it about Sean and Lowell where he needed to turn the volume up? <laughs> Earlier in this year, he lost his smile, and now he's back and doing this. Mm. Different time, different place. You know, it was it was attitude. God, I love it. And, you know, the, the, at the same time that we would be worried about some things with kids, you'd be asking a girl to take her top off, you know, while she's sitting there with her eight-year-old. And they did it. There's a little bit of a, a thing I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the riot that I didn't follow up on. It comes out that The Undertaker was limited on what he could do in the ring and was missing some other shows because he wasn't allowed to wrestle because his blood pressure was too high. What's up with that? I don't remember reading about that at the time. Uh, he had a bad hip, and um, I don't remember the blood pressure thing. I know he had a bad hip at the time, but it may have been when the doctor came in for the physical exam that day for the State Athletic Commission, his blood pressure may have been high. But he had a bad hip, and I know he was limited at that time, so his matches were kind of cumbersome. Your brother was uh, doing a camp after the first of the year, starting on January 3rd with Dory Funk and Pat Patterson. And they were going to really try to work on getting some guys polished up to start work on some, working on some, what they called storytelling abilities. And this includes guys who've been around the business for a while. Mark Mero, Ahmed Johnson, Kurgan, Mark Henry, Brackus, uh, Drozdoff, Steve Blackman, Adam Copeland, and a guy named Randy Blackbeard. I know all these guys except Randy Blackbeard. What can you tell us about Randy Blackbeard? Well, is is actually uh, Rodney Blackbeard was a guy from Calgary, I believe, that played football. He played Canadian football and had been through when Brett was up there and Brett had the ring. Uh, he had come to a few of the workout sessions with Brett, and they thought that he had some promise. He had been working out with uh, – Oh man, Leo, Leo Burke in Calgary and thought he might have had some promise, but he just was kind of vanilla. No personality. So it just never really worked out with old Rodney. You guys worked something out with a sumo wrestler from South Africa who was touring in Japan named Mark Robinson. And it was reported in the Japanese media that Mark Robinson had agreed to come in to the World Wrestling Federation. He's only 310 pounds, but is an African sumo champion, which I don't even know was a thing. What do you remember about Mark Robinson? Well, uh, that's not true. I remember being asked a question about some some guy saying in Japan that he had been signed by us and asking who the hell this guy is. And it was some guy that just happened to say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to the WWF. 
no truth to it at all. Uh, Dan Severn agrees to a contract with you guys. And obviously things have worked out well with Ken Shamrock, who's been with you eight months or so at this point. Whose idea was it to bring in Dan? Does Dan, cause Dan had been doing pro wrestling matches in the Midwest. Did Dan contact you guys or did Vince say, get me another one of those MMA guys? When Vince wanted one of those MMA guys, my first pick was Dan Severin. And the reason for that was, uh, the fact that he walked around with the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. But I liked Dan and, and I'd met Dan a couple of times. Really nice guy. He had, I think he had won more UFC tournaments than Shamrock had won, but Vince liked Shamrock. Vince felt Shamrock had more charisma. But from day one, we both felt that, that Dan would be a good fit. Um, I don't, it didn't necessarily work out. I think that Dan just didn't really fit into the World Wrestling Federation motif. A little bit more Matt Wrestler and better in that MMA world. Um, there was another guy who was mentioned as coming in around this time or trying to. Johnny Ace from All Japan Pro Wrestling had a meeting with the WWF and allegedly he expressed no interest in leaving All Japan but was interested in working for the company between his All Japan tours. Do you remember this conversation and what might that have sounded like? Uh, I'm the one that brought Johnny in and I'm trying to uh, let me, God, I hope I don't mess this up. Oh, I'm not a wrestler in the wrestling business. I'm a businessman in wrestling. And Vince thought that was just the coolest thing he'd ever heard. God damn it. I love his attitude. But in my opinion, Johnny was, he was coming in. No, he was, Johnny was looking for full-time work. He was tired of going over to Japan back and forth all the time. Oh, you got anything full-time? Well, I don't have to work all the time though. And it just, it, it was a, a relatively quick meeting, but Vince got the, Vince got the feeling that he was just trying to solidify his spot in all Japan by having the meeting. And that was it. Try to just strengthen his spot over there. Sean Morley is also signing to come in. Of course, he's going to go on to be Val Venus. Uh, at this point, he had done some shots with All Japan, but he had worked a lot in uh, EML, L, and uh, Puerto Rico. And he apparently had a lot of interest because word had gotten out that Bischoff was trying to get him to sign as well. And supposedly Bischoff said something like, whatever the WWF offer is, I'll beat it. Do you remember any sort of hoopla around trying to sign Sean Morley or there being some discussion that WCW was after him? The more, the more of the discussion was if Sean came in because Sean Morley was brought to us by Victor Quinones and the take on Sean Morley was Sean had a great gig in Mexico. He also had a great gig in Japan by him coming into the WWF. Could that offset and would he make as much money as he's been making between Mexico and Japan? So, um, we felt, obviously, that, that he could. I don't think that he was ever really seriously considering WCW. He never used that with us, you know, as a, hey, WCW wants me also. His thing was, I've got a great, I've got a great deal in Japan. I've got a great deal in Mexico. If I come here, do I get steady work and will I make as much money? 
Um, another name that pops up in this same observer is Sean Stasiak. Why don't you think Stasiak had a bigger run in the business? He's in that same training camp with Sean Morley and the other guys that we were mentioning. I mean, Adam Copeland's in there. Val Venus is in there. There's guys who have good runs with the company in there. And Sean Stasiak, who's a second generation guy who a lot of people would have assumed would have been a really big deal. Uh, and I was one of those people. I hired Sean Stasiak. I saw a couple of Sean's tapes uh, from Portland. Uh, he had a gimmick, Arachna Man or Mr. Arachnia, something like that, where he painted his face like a spider. was kind of doing an Ultimate Warrior gimmick. But I knew Sean's dad, Stan, and I thought, man, second-generation wrestler. His dad was a former WWWF champion. Um, man, there's got to be something here. He's got. He's built like a brick shit house. He looks great standing there. But I will sum it up, all up for y'all. Sum up Sean's career for you in this one little story. Sean came in the first time when Kurt Angle came in. Sean had been working. Sean had spent his entire life around the professional wrestling business. His dad was a professional wrestler, wrestled all over the world. Kurt Angle was an Olympic wrestler who had won the 1996 gold medal in wrestling. Never really watched professional wrestling, nor had much of a taste for it. Kurt Angle had spent his entire life naturally trying to stay off of his back. Sean Stasiak had wrestled professionally for three years in independence and things, taking bumps and doing different things. When Tom got Sean and Kurt in the ring, Kurt Angle was attacking the mat and taking flat back bumps like he had been taking them for 20 years. Sean Stasiak was having problems taking flat back bumps who had been wrestling for three years and I should have known it then and I'm not saying that that Sean didn't turn into a decent hand but he I think that Sean Stasiak had a habit of, of overthinking things and thinking that he was a lot better than he ever was really nice guy but not made for this business Well, all right. Uh, a guy who was made for this business, Mr. Gordon Soley. He is honored at WWF house shows in Florida in February and he even appeared at a raw taping. Uh, I don't know that he was shown on camera. I don't remember that part. How does this come to be? It doesn't feel like something that Vince does a lot of. And I don't know that he would have even been a huge Gordon Soley fan, given that Gordon was mostly a Southern commentator who put that for, together for Gordon and the WWF. Jim Ross did, and Jim obviously was a big fan of Gordon's. We all were big fans of Gordon Soley's, but Vince did have respect for Gordon, and he, and he did like his work, just that he never had an opportunity to work in the WWF, and any time that, you know, for all the knocks that we give Vince about other territories and other places, he did appreciate the history of the business and those who were a part of it, and, and he did like those old-timers like that. Uh, the Disciples of Apocalypse are no longer a thing because Skull and 8-Ball are going to be re-signed, but Crush was officially released. 
And, of course, we know he winds up in WCW. But allegedly this happened after Kane accidentally dropped him wrong and Crush was pretty fired up about it and handled management and told some people off that maybe paved the way for his release, according to Meltzer. How do you remember Crush's run here coming to an end? Is that true? Kane accidentally hurt him and he sort of blew a gasket? Well, I, I definitely remember Kane hurting him, and I definitely remember uh, Brian blowing a gasket. And he came back. It was at a TV taping, and he was pretty damn pissed off. And I think it was Brian that asked for his release. He was pissed off about it, and I remember Undertaker kind of calming the situation down in the back. Um, Brian was pissed. He was hurt, and I can't blame him for being pissed off for uh, hurting his neck, but it, he may have overreacted, and in his overreacting, asking for his release, it's one of those things, catch Vince on the wrong day in the wrong place and say, you know, I might be, you know, I, I should just leave. Okay, then leave. And that's what this was more a case of. Meltzer would spend a great deal of time speculating in The Observer about what Mike Tyson's role might be with the company, and he called the use of Mike Tyson and the show-long teases of Mike Tyson, a pathetic ratings ploy, which I feel like is a ridiculous thing to write. Um, but he sort of speculates that maybe the idea is to take one of the hottest acts in the history of UFC, Ken Shamrock, and, I, and obviously the hottest act in the history of boxing as far as box office goes, and Mike Tyson, and put them together at WrestleMania, although the athletic commissions might not like it. Let's talk about Tyson here. When Vince has the idea, let's do something with Tyson. Was there an idea to do something besides what he wound up doing? Bruce, take your pills. Thank you. Because uh, Vince recently, uh, Vince Russo rather, was recently on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast. And Steve sort of suggested that at one point, Vince sort of looked at him and said, what about boxing, Mike? And Austin laughed it off like there's no fucking way I'm boxing him. And Russo sort of freestyled that he thought maybe Shane was attached to, to Tyson's hip because Vince thought there would be an opportunity to vent, for Vince to step in as maybe his pay-per-view boxing promoter moving forward once all of the Holyfield stuff sorted itself out. So what was the original plan? for Tyson when Vince first, first says, Goddamn, pal, I got an idea. Well, the, the original plan was just try to get Mike into the fold. As far as, is Russo, uh, Russo's comment about Shane McMahon. Yes, that was definitely the plan. The, the plan was to have Shane be with Mike, uh, essentially 24 seven. He would travel with Mike and make sure that Mike got to where he needed to be on time. But also, Mike was in between management. Mike was not with Mike uh, was not with Don King at this time. He was in between, and he was looking for new management. So the thought of the possibility of having Mike Tyson and being able to manage the career of the baddest man on the planet—you kidding me? That was definitely in Vince's forefront. So he did have Shane traveling around with him and shadowing Mike and just kind of getting in his head and showing him how we handle people and how we do business and how much better off he would be if we handled all of his affairs. Um, 
as far as Vince saying to Steve, you know, how about boxing him? Yeah, Vince floated a lot of stuff out there. What do we do with him? We have an opportunity to have Mike Tyson for WrestleMania. What do we do with him? Now, Mike, you know, and his people pretty much from, from the get go, we knew he was going to be a, a guest referee. I mean, that's, we knew that. But along the way, we're thinking, God, what else? Is there something else? Is there something else down, down the line that we could do? And I don't know anybody in their right mind, especially at that, at that time, um, that would want to put boxing gloves on and get in the ring with, with Mike Tyson, at least in the wrestling business. I don't know anybody crazy enough to do that. So just to be clear, you guys never asked him to do anything else besides be a referee. There was never any sort of, you could work a tag team sort of deal like WCW did the next year with Dennis Rodman. I think, you know, for Vince, he knew to get, get in the door. He wanted to get in the door with Mike and just wanted to get Mike in and see how we do business. So let's get him in the door and we'll approach it as we go along. So at first to Tyson and to Tyson's people, it was, we want a, an appearance at WrestleMania and maybe a, uh, guest referee gig where he was protected. And he was comfortable with that. Was Vince nervous about any, cause I know it's a sort of bullshit that we even have to talk about it, but state athletic commissions were still a thing. Was Vince worried about having any sort of uh, backlash from the state athletic commissions with having Tyson involved in any way? Uh, for WrestleMania, no, no, not for WrestleMania at all. Um, but. Going further, I mean, yeah, that was definitely a concern as far as if some athletic commission want to go, hey, no, he's he's not licensed in boxing, he's he's banned, and we're going to carry that over to wrestling. But that wasn't as big of a concern. We felt we could get around that. On the December 29th episode of Raw, we see some kind of fun, memorable stuff. One of the things I remember the most, I guess because of my age, is China showed up with a boob job, and DX spent the entire promo talking about and making reference to her enhanced cleavage, shall we say, were these promos like this? Is this something that, um, Russo had a hand in Do the guys just when they're riding down the road, come up with these ideas and then pitch them to Russo or McMahon or how does some of this, uh, sophomoric stuff get presented backstage at this time. And a lot of that stuff was guys suggesting to Russo and, and Vince and myself and everything. Um, I wasn't totally out of the, the TV writing process at this time. So it was any, a number of us, but it was a lot of it. This was Vince Russo really, you know, coming into his own at this point. Uh, Miro is back here. He's doing a little bit of a heel deal where he doesn't want anybody to see Sable scantily clad and he's doing his boxer gimmick and he's a heel and he's calling out the undercard performers and he's winning all of his matches with uh, ding dong punches. Um, <laughs> whose idea was it to take a golden gloves guy and say, Hey, I got an idea. What if you just start hitting everybody in the ding dong? Are you speaking of his testicles? I love it. God damn. Good shit, pal. You know, some t again, it's Vince will come up with something and think, what's worse than getting knocked out? 
you get hit in the balls. So don't knock him out. Hit him in the balls. Every man will go down, and everyone knows what that feels like. Next thing you know, <laughs> what's your finish, kid? I punch people in the balls. I can see, I can see working with Harley Race and, uh, in the old days and Harley comes in and do TV and <laughs> what's your finish, kid? Well, I hit people's in the, people in the balls, Mr. Race. I'll move. Yeah, just <laughs> times change. Uh, dude love does an interview where he transforms into mankind and then cactus Jack. And Meltzer would write, real interesting in New York to see zero reaction to Dude Love, but a huge pop when he switched to Cactus Jack. Of course, he winds up taking on both of the New Age Outlaws, and uh, then he's drugged to the back where there's a big box. And as they fight, a chainsaw starts to saw its way out of the box. And there was a chant of Terry immediately because it wasn't exactly a secret that Terry Funk was debuting on this show. But Funk comes out wearing a stocking and he's called Chainsaw Charlie. And the announcers never used the name Terry Funk. And um, this is obviously reminiscent of the Leatherface gimmick from Japan. We haven't talked about Leatherface a lot here on the show, but Leatherface had to be part of the inspiration for the chainsaw, right? He was, and... It was also coincidentally uh, after a trip that I had taken to Japan for, uh, oh my gosh, the, the crazy guy over there, but the, the FMW where Terry was on tour and Kirshner was over there doing the Leatherface gimmick. And I remember sitting on the bus and Terry, or actually backstage uh, in the dressing room, and Terry looking over at Kirshner going, Pritchard. He's got a hell of a gimmick, this kid. Watch him go out. They think the goddamn chainsaw's live, but he's going to hit it. Sparks are going to come out. He works the goddamn thing. All these little motherfuckers are going to run scattering because they think the goddamn thing's live, and he's going to come out there and chop their goddamn heads off. Goddamn Vince could make a million with him. (laughs) And... Fast forward, you know, however many months. And it's like, hey, Terry, <laughs> what's doing? Chainsaw Charlie was born. I've got an idea, Pritchard. I don't want to come back as just Terry Funk. And he told a story about John Ayers, who was a good friend of his, and I believe he played for the Denver Broncos. And they were childhood friends. They used to go get their hair cut by this barber in town and they called him chainsaw Charlie and Terry wanted to be, he says, and and John Ayers has just passed uh, due to cancer recently. He goes, I'd like to keep the memory of Johnny alive and I'd like to be called Chainsaw Charlie. And I'll wear a get up. I'll put a goddamn pantyhose on my head and, Chainsaw Charlie was born, man, because I love the chainsaw gimmick that I saw over in Japan that Terry sold me on. Be careful what you wish for. Yes. Um, the whole box thing, you got to tell us whose idea that was for our new listeners. Goddamn, 
WTBS, fucking go in there every week. They have a box, and you wonder who's in the box, what's in the box, and you move it around a little bit. And whenever a motherfucker comes out of a box, they're over instantly. George the Animal Steel came out of a box on TBS. Abdullah the Butcher came out of a box one time. I don't know. He gave a whole list of people that came out of a box and were instantaneous. If you come out of a box, you're over. So we put Terry in a box. Uh, this It'll is the, over. Speaking of Jim Cornette, uh, this is where he does an interview where he's setting up his uh, interpromotional feud with the WWF. We've talked about this a little bit here, but this whole NWA invasion into the WWF, this is not in the book of good ideas, is it? Was this the NWA shit? Yes, it was. And it was, <sighs> look, here's, here's the problem. Jim Cornette is one of the greatest promos ever in the history of the business especially when Jimmy believes in what he's talking about. So Jim was just so passionate about the old school wrestling, wrestling the way it used to be and the way it ought to be, motherfucker, that he would he would cut these promos just spontaneously throughout meetings every once in a while. And Vince was like, God damn, I need to hear that on TV. And it was born. I'll invade. Then there we go. All right. Um, Owen Hart finally gets a match against Shawn Michaels, and it's on Raw here. They go 10 and a quarter minutes um, when Hart has Michaels in the sharpshooter, and then Triple H clocks him with the crutch. So, of course, uh, Owen wins by DQ, but that's sort of... Uh, you know, widen the feud down a little bit here. Do you remember there being any sort of conversation with Owen about whether or not he could work with Sean, any sort of reservation, or is that not even a consideration at this point? Dude, there, there was absolutely no reservation. And when Owen had come back and did all the stuff with Sean and Hunter, he was happy to do it and was really looking forward to doing it. Like I said, we, if we could have done that Owen Sean deal, it was something that we probably would have done post WrestleMania. They had great matches. Um, let's talk a little bit about Dennis Rodman. I mentioned him earlier that there was going to be some sort of, um, idea for Tyson to do more, much like Dennis Rodman did the year after this in 1998. Well, Dennis Rodman was actually working with WCW in 97. And the rumor and innuendo is that that was originally Vince's deal and WCW sort of took it from him. Do you remember that going down that way? Well, we had talked to Dennis, yes, and, and that is true. We had been talking to Dennis and then WCW outbid us and he ended up going with WCW. But beyond that, it, it didn't get past that negotiation phase. Uh, Don King was still promoting Mike Tyson and even did some tape stuff with you guys. What was your experience like with Don King? Uh, <laughs> Don King's character. Let's just put it like that. Don, Don King is a, is a character. And the first time that I met Don, I felt like I needed to take a shower afterwards. Really? But is why, why Don, 
Um, he just came across as, as a shyster. He came across as if he told you that the page was white, that it was anything but. So, uh, as, as time went on and I had other, uh, interactions with him, he finally became a, a kindly old man. But initially, I just felt like no matter what Don was telling you, I, I should think the opposite. And that was my initial reaction to Don King. Do you think there was any sort of concern when Vince is making this gamble that maybe he's overpaying? Because it's reported that in, in the Observer that whatever the offer was, was sort of too rich for WCW's blood. Was that based on the dollar amount, the number of dates, that he wasn't going to be doing anything physical besides being a referee? What made it more attractive for him to do something with you guys as opposed to WCW? Well, it had nothing to do with the dollar amount. As usual, Meltzer's wrong. And it had more to do with the relationship. And the relationship that Mike Tyson grew up a WWF fan. As a kid, he was from New York. He watched WWF. He knew Vince. He trusted Vince. He had had previous interactions with Vince. So to him, WCW was the second tier. They may have been kicking our ass in television ratings, but to Mike Tyson, he wanted to be with the big league, and to him, he was always a WWF fan. So that's where he wanted to be, and it was all about the relationship. It had nothing to do with money, had nothing to do with anything else other than we were there first. He liked us, and Mike Tyson is a man of his word. So once he agreed to the deal and said, yes, he would do it, he was going to do it. I know you don't like to talk about money, but you got to give us a hint. What'd you guys pay Mike? I, you know, I really and truly don't know. I do know that the initial offer changed because after the confrontation with Steve on Raw the next night, we went in, we had so many dates on Mike. And that night, Vince and I got in his office after the deal and just was like, oh my God. We, we we have to have him for this whole promotion. And we started mapping out all these different things we could do with the dates we had, and we started running into the problem of, shit, we need more dates. So Vince went in and said, all right, I'll, I'll go in and renegotiate. So I don't know what that renegotiation entitled. It was significant. I mean, it was it was probably over a million dollars. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of talk that it was $2 million, $5 million, but you're – I don't believe it was anywhere near five million, but I bet it was. I bet it was in the million dollar range. Um, one of the things that was discussed a lot in the dirt sheets at the time was, as we mentioned earlier, the Holyfield Tyson fight happened on the twenty seventh, uh, or maybe it was the twenty eighth. Either way, late June. Well, the Nitro afterwards, the company was in Las Vegas, and supposedly they had worked it out to where Tyson could appear on Nitro since he'd already be in town having just fought Evander Holyfield, and he was a wrestling fan. But, of course, he bit the guy's fucking ear, so he wound up not making the appearance. Had Tyson appeared on Nitro and the bite not happened the way it did, none of this would have ever happened, right? This is a perfect storm of Tyson needs to get in trouble and need a payday and not show up on WCW. Like, there's a lot of things here that fall into place that allow this WWF relationship to exist, right? 
Well, let me put it this way. If, Ty, if Tyson had still had his boxing license and was able to make a living in boxing, he would have been boxing. Right. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been in a wrestling ring or having anything to do with it. In a so weird, the fact that that happened, it was good for us. In a weird way, one of the best things that ever happened for Vince McMahon and specifically Stone Cold Steve Austin is that Mike Tyson bit a motherfucker's ear. Gotta love it. It's just America, weird. America. You gotta Only love in it. America. It's just amazing to think about really that the whole business might have been, I mean, the greatest star the business ever knew sort of half assed got over to the degree it did and became such a smash hit because Evander Holyfield got his ear bitten. Thanks, Evander. Thanks for calling that spot. You know, they got in there and he says, Hey, bite my ear. And then he did it one time and he sold it a little bit. And they said, Hey, come on back in for a second time. Bite it off. Let's get a little spot. Get a little piece of business. We should remind you that, um, when Terry Funk shows up here as Chainsaw Charlie, he's finishing up an FMW deal where he was making like $15,000 a week. But let's remind you it's late December. What happened in September? Of 1997 with Terry Funk. I don't know what happened. He retired. He had WrestleFest. You guys loaned him uh, Mick Foley, and he wrestled uh, Sabu. And then in the main event, Dennis Stamp wanted to be there, and he was the referee when Bret Hart got rolled up, or actually rolled up Terry Funk. And now, three months later, Funk is back, but he's wearing a mask. Yeah, they did that. They did that wonderful, uh, you know, documentary with Terry getting out of bed. And, uh, so, you know, might as well go back to mattress firm and let's keep the ball rolling. Shall we? I'm, I'm down, man. Cause here's the deal. Everybody knows how important it is to stretch before an event. And so does mattress firm. Well, except it's your dollar and your budget stretches further when you're shopping at America's neighborhood mattress store. It's a true home run and you'll have a ball. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise, but know this, they are more than just mattress experts. Yeah, they got a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases, sheets, headboards, and bedroom decor. They have you literally and figuratively covered like your favorite cornerback. Uh-huh. Go to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast to see what deals are happening as I read this sentence to you, they even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Yeah, talk about a one-two punch, a knockout, if you will, baby. Score big with a perfect bed. Head on over to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast. Right now, do it. So here we are, uh, lots of conversations about Mike Tyson, but we should keep it going because it's reported in the Observer here that all of a sudden Hulk Hogan's in the conversation. And we've touched on this briefly before. But Hulk Hogan's WCW contract is going to be winding down, and all of a sudden it does look uh, fairly attractive that you've got an opportunity to have the hottest heel in the business, the leader of the NWO, jump ship 
And now you've got the biggest pay-per-view attraction in decades, my, I guess ever, Mike Tyson. How close did that almost come to be? Well, at this time, not that close because Vince felt that the last time that he had negotiated with Terry, he was being used to get himself a better deal. He's happy that he got Hulk a better deal. But now he was looking to the future and felt for the long term he needed to go with Stone Cold Steve Austin, kind of go with the youth that we had. You know, you look at all the guys we had coming up. You had Rock, you had Steve, you know, Sean was still in the picture. You had Triple H, Mankind. We had a pretty damn good crew going forward, and he didn't want to upset that apple cart. Allegedly, uh, the WWF takes some precautions, and they check with the Nevada State Athletic Commission to make sure they're okay to use Mike. And they're told by Mark Ratner, who's running the Athletic Commission at the time, that they view Mike appearing here like he was appearing on any late-night television show. It's not an athletic event and something that they would consider in violation. Who would have been the person to make that call with the athletic commissions just to sort of run it up the flagpole? Richard Herring, Judge Richard Herring from uh, New York. He was uh, part of the New York State Athletic Commission, and later on he was a uh, advisor for the WWF. Um, one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, brilliant guy. But uh, he had great connections, and he could make that phone call easily. And they'd pick up the phone for Judge Herring. There was a lot of talk that the commissions around the country were saying that while Tyson may not be violating the letter of the law, he is violating the spirit of the law because he's supposed to be under suspension. And supposedly, the head of the Massachusetts Commission said that he would send a letter recommending Tyson not be used on the show. But since they had no governing power over pro wrestling... It's also just posturing. Do you remember there being talk from Mass that, hey, we don't want you to use him, but we can't tell you not to? Well, there was basically when you go to the uh, Athletic Commission in the state of Nevada, they, in boxing, it's pretty much New York and Nevada who are the big dogs and who make a lot of the decisions because that's where the money is. So we had not, we not only asked Nevada, but we asked a lot of the Athletic Commission's that governed wrestling and boxing and got the temperature of the water for the most part. And for the most part, everybody shared Nevada's take that this is no different than appearing on Saturday Night Live, that this was entertainment, that this had nothing to do. He wasn't competing and he wasn't boxing. So who cares what he does as long as he's not going to be in there and I don't want to say deface or uh, hurt the boxing name in any way. So for the most part, the majority of the athletic commissions did not have a problem with it at all. There, there were a few holier than thou. Like, he shouldn't be in a ring. But those were few and far between. When you guys read, because I know you personally may not have, but somebody in the office or the locker room was reading the Observer. When they read that, Mike Tyson's getting $4 million. And I know you've just shut holes in that, but it was in the observer that it was a $4 million deal. Does this piss any of the boys off when they remember just three months prior, Bret Hart was told we can't afford to keep you. Sure it does. And that's exactly, and, and, and in my opinion, that's exactly what Meltzer, you know, designed his stuff to do to, you know, he, he prints these rumors and innuendo and bullshit to get people talking and get them upset. So the boys read that. 
And that's exactly what happens. They immediately start talking amongst themselves. Go, God, I, I heard it was six million. Oh yeah. Well, I, I saw for a fact, I saw a check <laughs> made out to Mike Tyson in Vince's briefcase for five million. And, and it just takes a life unto itself when none of them really know. Do you remember any of the boys specifically being upset? Like, can you? Remember one individual who was pretty fired up about it? None that came to us directly. And to the contrary, I think that the guys that were on top, especially at that time, because it was a groundswell. And house shows during this time, man, they they were on the upswing and they were doing better. And guys were making money, starting to make money now, which they hadn't a few months before. But all of a sudden now the house shows are doing better. They're getting paid off of the house shows. And there was an upswell, and they're going, well, hell, man, maybe that's because all these people are talking, and maybe, you know what, maybe all this buzz is helping us, and if Mike Tyson's doing that, then more power to him. The rub comes when they're reporting all these bullshit numbers, because if you're talking five or six million, that's, that's a big chunk of change that they think that is coming out of their pocket, and right. that just wasn't the case. I should tell you how much business is up here. Let's run some numbers from it fast. Uh, from December of 96 to December of 97, you go from 3,500 on your average attendance to 6,616. So attendance is up 89%. The gate, it follows the leader as well. You're at $59,788 on average. Now you're up 89% at 113,241 bucks. Television ratings are up too. You go from a 1.3 in December of 96 to a 2.2 in December of 97. What a time to be in the company, right, Bruce? It is because, again, you're seeing different things. And, and Jim Ross and I talked about the, this the other day on his podcast that while there probably were some and, and Meltzer and other people like that that were really focusing on, oh, they're getting their ass kicked in the television ratings – and yes, we did look at that, but we didn't have time to dwell on it. We didn't have time to sit there and go, oh, gosh, gee, Willikers, they beat us by seven-tenths of a point last week. We had to look at, man, what are we going to do next week? What, what What is in front of us right now? What do we have to get done? That was the priority with us, and things were moving so quickly that you didn't have time to to go back and reflect. You knew that, all right, man, that, that house last night was pretty damn good. And you look at the checks and you kind of look at, okay, well, bonuses are good. This is good. That's good. Uh, we're moving forward into the go home show before the Royal Rumble in State College, PA. You guys drew 86.28 for a gate of $124,765. It's on January 12th. And, um, the show gets going with DX sort of taking their jabs at the Ric Flair, Bret Hart feud. Um, when Sean starts talking about how he's the best there is, the best there was, and Triple H interrupts him and says, none of that lame stuff. And you guys are really doing a lot of this in late 97 and early 98 here, where you're sort of drawing attention to we're, we're the younger guys. Is that Vince sort of poking the bear or is that Russo? No, that's Vince absolutely poking the bear because that was during the time, you know, where 
he's still looking at WCW being, for the most part, former superstars from the WWF. And if you can look at and have something that, that's real and go, oh, well, that's all the older guys. Of course, you know, they were here before, but then they got too old to be here and they can't hang now because we've got all these young guys. So, sure, that's Vince McMahon stating the obvious. You know, it's funny how, and we've talked a lot about how, you know, age changes as we get older because, you know, we start to view <laughs> it a little differently. So Jim Cornette on this mm-hmm. show introduces the Rock and Roll Express as the NWA Tag Team Champions and calls them five-time champions. But there's no belts there. And Meltzer would write, crowd was dead. Morton, who is 41, and Gibson, 40, looked positively ancient. And it was actually like watching Saturday Night Live spoof two old men trying to be the Rock and Roll Express. The crowd was dead. Cornette interfered for the DQ in two minutes and 28 seconds. Now, by comparison, I remember watching this and thinking the same thing. Man, look at these old guys. Here's what's crazy to me. AJ Styles is 40 years old. Young kid. I mean, we're, I mean, AJ Styles is probably the best wrestler in the world, arguably the best wrestler in the world. You could also, you know, lump Kenny Omega and a few others into that conversation, but he's certainly the best in the WWF based on almost all criteria that you would look at. And he's 40 years old. And here, Gibson and Morton are being described as, you know, a spoof. How were they received? I know it's a different time. What was it about this act that just did not resonate with the crowd in 1998? I think because they looked at them as 40-year-old men trying to be 20-year-olds with the whole Rock and Roll Express gimmick and, you know, rock and roll and we're young. Um, it just looked like an old act, and that's that's terrible, and it was – it was Denner and Kelsey's nuts, as Jim Cornette would say. The audience did not give a flip. They didn't care. They weren't WWF guys. And we were in the heart of WWF territory. So these guys were kind of seen as, you know, those, uh, them Southern wrestlers. You know, we had, we had the, the real rockers. We had the rockers up here. And these guys just an imitation of them. A couple old guys trying to relive their youth. But for the WWF at that time and rock and roll coming in, it was, they were not welcomed <laughs> by the audience. They were welcomed by the boys. I think that the boys uh, loved them and they were great workers, but audience didn't care. This is also the show where it looks like Kane is going to join DX. And then all of a sudden uh, he instead sides with his brother, the undertaker. Um, was there ever, I mean, at this point, obviously, Kane is still a new character, you know, having just debuted a few months prior. Was the storyline arc for the Kane character, and I'm sure we're going to do this on a future episode, was it always supposed to be bad blood to WrestleMania and then do something else with Kane? Or, I mean, obviously, it wasn't supposed to be a 20-year-old character. Well, no, we thought that it wasn't. We, we was looking for an opponent for The Undertaker, and we thought once we got to WrestleMania – we could then have subsequent matches and those returns all the way. But that first, the first time they actually were going to have a match, we had to get to WrestleMania. I don't know that anyone really thought that Kane would in, 
endure this long. I mean, how could you? Nobody else has. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented. But it, you know, it speaks, it speaks to the talent of Glenn Jacobs and just, um, being able to reinvent that character over and over and over again that it's a strong character and people dig it. He's in the main event at the Royal Rumble <laughs> next Sunday. That's insane. Um, so that's the go-home episode of Raw, and they start to tease there with the promo that Shawn Michaels is cutting that Mike Tyson is going to be positioned as a babyface. Vince Russo was recently on Steve Austin's podcast and teased that that maybe wasn't always the plan, that everybody else sort of thought that he had to be a babyface because they wanted to try to help Mike rehab his image a little bit because Mike was a super heel. He's coming off a prison stint, and now he bit a motherfucker's ear off. So he's a super heel, naturally. So anytime he's out here with Don King, who's also very hateable, everybody's going to boo. But Russo says it was his idea to do a swerve, bro, and have him instead side with DX. Is that the way you remember this going down? Well, no, because it was... The swer- yes, the swerve did happen, and I, it may have been Vince Russo's idea to do the swerve at that point. But we had originally, the idea was get to the, you know, get to that attraction. The, the attraction would be Steve and Sean. Tyson is a special guest referee. And we only, like I said, we only had Mike for a couple of dates. Once Tyson and Austin were in the ring together and you felt that, you just felt that buzz and that electricity and that live crowd. And when they touched, man, that, that was magic. That was a moment where we all went, Oh shit. This is, this is bigger than anybody ever thought. And the, the feeling of, man, you can't have, if people feel that Mike Tyson is an antagonist now to Stone Cold Steve Austin, that's going to add a lot more to the attraction. So now we had to get more dates on Tyson. We had to figure out a way. How do we get Mike to be the antagonist to Steve without shifting the focus to people now only want to see Mike versus Steve? And that was the line that you had to walk. And that's the whole DX thing. Well, said do that, have him join DX and have him be a part of the heel faction to where he's kind of still Sean is in the foreground and Sean is the one pulling the strings. All right, let's get to it. Royal Rumble 1998, as we said earlier, San Jose, California, January 18th. So yesterday was the 20-year anniversary. It sold out a week ahead of time. 18,542 folks were in the building. 16,661 of those paid 414000 bucks, uh, and they did another $159,000 in merchandise. It broke the all-time record for Northern California, which was 17000 for a 1962 match between Ray Stevens and Pepper Gomez at the Cow Palace. And uh, for the gate, it nearly doubled the record set back in 97 by WCW for Hogan and Piper at Super Brawl at the Cow Palace. So this is a big, big deal for you guys to have a house like this. I mean, Vince has to be tickled when you sell out a week ahead and sell all these records, right? Yeah, it, the momentum was there. Everybody was feeling it. We... We already had uh, the sellout before we even leaked Tyson was going to be there. 
So it was that was a good feeling, and we felt okay. This is even more of a reason to go ahead and leak Tyson to get people buzzing about it even more to buy the pay per view locally and elsewhere. So. Yeah, this was a good feeling coming off of the last year we had. We had momentum going into this. Uh, I guess we should uh, also mention that um, we've covered a lot of this show on some of our shows in the archives because we've covered matches based on the talent. So we're going to run through some of this. Uh, the first one, the first match is Vader taking on Goldust. We've got a Vader episode in our archives that I recommend. It's probably our first super in-depth show and we've got a Goldust episode that uh, people just absolutely love. So check out both of those in the archives if you haven't already. It's somethingtowrestle.com. Uh, Friday at noon is when you can catch the new shows every week. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. I haven't said this in a long time, but leave us a review as well on iTunes. We'd really appreciate that. If you haven't already, please do. Uh, Meltzer right of this match, both guys worked hard but they were a little off. Actually, Goldust for the past few years has been a little off, although there were some good bumps and the match had a nice finish. Vader went up with a Vader bomb, but Luna did a run-in, jumping on Vader's back. Vader still climbed the ropes with Luna on his back, and he did the Vader bomb with her there for the added weight and got the pin, star and a quarter. Uh, we've talked about this before, but it's still fun to watch Vader do a Vader bomb with Luna on his back, is it not? And it looked like, and Luna just face planted on the, the Vader bomb when he came off of there and she had absolutely nowhere to go. But the thing that got me out of the whole thing on my notes, I wrote shockingly very good match. Man, they busted their ass. They had a really good match. Vader was on and Goldust was as usual excellent. It's weird because I, I get hyped every time I see Vader. I was such a fan of Vader in WCW, and his match with Flair at Starcade 93 is one of my favorite matches ever. But to see him here in the opening card, you're, you have sort of lowered expectations, but I'm like you. I thought the match was really good. I also appreciated this weird, hey, we're going to go way over the top with Goldust. He didn't do it very long, but he's here in like a striped bodysuit with like a G-string on the outside. I mean, quite the outfit. Is this right out of your personal collection? Well, the G-string was. The brassiere was out of someone else's, but I don't want to mention Vince Russo's name. Uh, so next up, we've got a, a bunch of minis working a match, and this is, to my worldview, an excuse to have Sonny out here. Strut that ass! And, man, how roll tide was Sonny in January of 1998. There was a fun line in here in commentary where JR said something like, uh, you know, I hear she's fond of short guys, which I really appreciated. I heard that too. Yeah, I'm just. Thank you for. Well, you're not short. Uh, no, we're talking about Chris Candido. So Max oh. Minnie's out here, Nova, uh, Mosaic, and they're taking on uh, Battalion, Torito, and Tarantula. Uh, they go just about eight minutes, seven minutes and 49 seconds. This match on the network is a little hard to watch because they've had to change all of the music and have Howard Finkel redo the introductions. What did you think of the match? Well, it was it was entertaining, but um yeah, it was uh, all I could keep thinking of is during this time, you know, we had done the stuff with the minis where we had okay, like mini bata- the battalion, he was actually mini Vader, okay? When we did the little mini Vaders. Tarantula was mini mankind. And Nova was, I think, the original Masquerita Sagrada Jr. 
and Max Mini was the new Masquerita Sagrada Jr. So there was just so much. As I'm watching this, in my head, I'm thinking about all of the inner politics and inner turmoil of the lucha scene and, and the minis that we had and having to deal with all of those intricacies and putting them under different gimmicks because we we didn't have the license for Masquerita Sagrada Jr. and we didn't want to use their names or anything like that. So we could have done my point is we could have done so much more with that little with the mini division that just kept falling by the wayside and it just ended up being a novelty match with, you know, three minis from minis are us and have a match, put them in there. Get, get sunny in the ring in shorts. I like it. Hard to beat. Uh, Lawler had a great line in this as well, where he said that one of the minis, uh, tried to, uh, commit suicide by jumping off a curb, which is pretty good stuff. Uh, next yeah. up, we had Rocky Maivia wrestle Ken Shamrock in a match that I got to tell you, I thought Meltzer rated way too low. He only gave it two and a quarter stars. They go about 11 minutes. Rocky gets the win by DQ to retain. And uh, Meltzer writes, Maivia, who actually spent his childhood living in this area when his father and grandfather were two of the top local baby faces, controlled most of the match. Since both are relatively inexperienced, there were some sloppy spots. Uh, such as both going for moves at the same time or hesitations, and the finish was a screw job. I can actually recall when I was in junior high seeing Dwayne Johnson run around backstage every Wednesday night in the San Jose Civic Auditorium with his mom and sometimes his grandmother. The first big spot was Shamrock going for a Hurricane Rana, but also being caught, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. The finish I fucking loved. Um, we get Mike Kyoto distracted by the nation, my via clock shamrock with the brass knuckles and then takes the, sh- the knuckles and shoves them into shamrock's tights. But shamrock manages to kick out of the pen and then deliver his finishing move, a belly to belly for the three count. Now let's defy logic for a minute. Getting punched by a 270 pound motherfucker in the jaw with brass knuckles. You won't stay down three seconds, but if another guy grabs you around your waist and throws you down with a belly to belly, okay, now it's over. Let's pretend that's okay for a minute. The belt changes hands. They're playing Shamrock's music. The crowd's celebrating. And then The Rock is telling the ref, that's bullshit. He hit me with brass knuckles. Check his trunks. The ref does, finds the trunks that Shamrock didn't even know were in there, and overturns the decision. What a fucking smart finish. Is this a Patterson finish, or who did this? All the way, Pat Patterson finished the the whole match. Here's... Man, I got to get on my soapbox here because you like the match. I love the match. I thought the match was great. And to hear somebody like Dave Meltzer, who's never been in the ring, who doesn't know what the hell he's doing, who watches and adores the Japanese, whatever, when they do spots and they don't sell anything and they just smoothly go into the next spot. Here's, Here's where working comes into play. When you have guys and things aren't perfectly smooth and synchronized and pretty and beautiful so that, okay, you go into this and I'll go into that. And, and we, we don't sell anything and it's a smooth, pretty bump and I'm right up to me. That's not a great match. When you watch a a boxing match or you watch an MMA fight or you watch a fight and a competition in general, it can be sloppy. Okay. It's not going to be perfect. 
That's what makes a good work, and that's what makes a believable match. But someone that doesn't know that, that wants their synchronized crap, just, it drives me fucking nuts. The Legion of Doom is out next, and they're taking on the New Age Outlaws. And this is sort of a fun match here for me because it's sort of the infancy of the New Age Outlaws, but we're seeing where they're about to be superstars. And this is super old school, but I really appreciated this. Of course, we're in San Jose, so their local team is the San Francisco 49ers. It's January, so that means it's playoff time. Well, wouldn't you know it, Brett Favre and the Packers have just defeated the 49ers and kicked them out of the playoffs, and no longer are the 49ers lined up for the Super Bowl shot. This is so old school, easy heat, but I love it. When do you remember heels wearing the opposing team's jersey becoming like commonplace in wrestling? Oh, I think that, it, you know, for a good heel, and especially back in the day when we weren't different territories, so easy. It's just so easy when you have a really hot town that has a great sports team for a heel to go out and badmouth them. And that's just been done for years, and I love it. It's absolutely wonderful. But this match, you know, it was good. It told a simple oh, no, story. No, no. The match was awful. I'm not going to let you get away with that. I'm no, 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 no. Hang on. The, the match telling a story was a good story. The match itself, eh, it sucked. They were moving in slow motion and kind of falling down in sections. It wasn't the great. I actually wrote down not pretty. But the story, I thought the story was tremendous. The story, in case you haven't watched this, is the New Age Outlaws are going to do whatever they can to cheat. Now, on the way here, of course, they powerbombed these guys through tables, a card table, and then later the actual announcer's table, and they shaved Hawk's head. Uh, Hawk is out of shape here and not yeah. looking the best he's ever looked. This does not look like the Hawk from 10 years prior that everybody was like, holy shit. Um, and he's obviously blown up. So they're trying to have Animal work the majority of this match. So they come up with a gimmick where the New Age Outlaws have somehow put handcuffs on Hawk, and Hawk is going to be handcuffed to the outside turnbuckle on the floor so he can't possibly save animal and there's a couple of scary spots in there one with a power slam where it didn't look they were going to make it uh not the smoothest prettiest match ever of course eventually hawk magically breaks free of the handcuffs when was the first time you saw somebody break handcuffs like that the first time i remember seeing it was hulk hogan was somebody who was somebody doing that before that that i just don't remember or i didn't see you know, the old-time strongmen used to do that, but in the recent times, yeah, Hulk was probably the first one to do it on a big national basis. Either way, though, um, we wind up with a DQ here, so the LOD gets the win. The Outlaws were using a chair. They got caught using a chair, uh, so that's it. But Hulk eventually breaks free, but eventually uh, he hits the ring and clocks both guys with chairs himself, and that in and of itself is sort of interesting because – he doesn't have the chair position just right. This no. is just a, a sad showing of the Legion of Doom. It really does feel like a little bit of the passing of the torch. And I know that the New Age Outlaws are going to be repackaged as LOD 2000, and Sonny's going to be put with them, and they'll have a slightly different look and all that stuff. So you guys did your best for them. But this pay-per-view to me showed, man, this is a gimmick from yesteryear. This is This is not something that belongs in this version of the WWF. 
it was kind of sad to watch sometimes and you just wanted to, and it's hard to, and it's hard to accept because we, we hang on to nostalgia and we hang on to those acts probably longer than we should. Especially these guys, you know, I mean, the definition of a road warrior pop, which is what you're going to hear this Monday when brother love returns to raw, they'll actually rename it a brother love pop, not a road warrior pop that, that match of course, uh, got a star and a quarter, which I thought was very charitable. Uh, by Dave Meltzer. I, I appreciate what you said about the story, but man, I was worried for these guys several times in this match. Let's get, yeah, to the it Royal, just one pretty. Let's get to the Royal Rumble. Cactus Jack comes in first, and uh, this pay per view is famous for what we're going to talk about with this, but he's eventually eliminated by Chainsaw Charlie. Uh, number two, of course, is Chainsaw Charlie, and Chainsaw Charlie wound up being eliminated by Mankind. Are you following me so far? Uh, number three is going to be Tom Brandy. He's going to be eliminated oh. by Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. So hopefully you're keeping up. <laughs> Mick Foley's in this fucker three times. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But, you know, the thing that got me and, you know, Pat and I put this thing together. But what Mick and Terry did at the very beginning, trading the unprotected chair shots. Oh, my God. Watching that 20 years later just made me cringe and want to crawl under my desk horror i mean it's just it's hard to watch it was uh it's a fun show because you're ready for steve austin the entire time and the show is really built around steve austin to the point that we see him arrive in the stone cold steve austin truck which was custom painted with the smoking skull and they ran a contest and mildred bowers is announced as the winner uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. And Mildred Bowers, uh, was, was an older lady then. Uh, I, I don't know if she's still with us or not. She may have passed away now, but, uh, there's a fun, there's a fun video out there on YouTube. If you get a chance, I encourage you to throw it in your Google machine. Winner of Royal Rumble 1998 Stone Cold Truck, Mildred Bowers. And you'll see a video of her winning her Silverado that says 100% pure whoop ass on the tailgate. Um, how was Mildred selected for this? This is fucking awesome. It's, we had a, there's a company that does like sweepstakes and contests and all that so that you keep it all on the up and up. And they randomly select them through whatever process they use. I don't know if it's a computer or if someone random house or whoever just reaches into a big bin and draws it out. But you, we had a company that did it and handled that whole drawing. You've got to see Mildred strutting that ass in this. Oh, I've, I've seen it. I've it, seen the video you're talking about. It is so great. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, man, throw in your Google machine. You will not regret it. Uh, so, of course, Steve Austin is a, a wanted man. Everybody's out for him. The Godwins and everybody doing these skits all throughout the show. Everybody wants to know, when's he going to be here? And And so we're telling a story. Can he overcome all odds? But at the same time, we establish, in my opinion, Mick Foley as a major player because we see him three different times as Cactus Jack, uh, as Mankind, um, and, and of course he's in here as Dude Love as well. So he's doing all three gimmicks, and it comes down to uh, the final deal and, here. Go ahead. And let's go back to that because that was something that Pat and I pitched to Vince, and he was like, how the hell can he do that? He can't be in the ring at the same time. We're like, no, man. So we called Mick and said, hey, is this something you can do? And Mick loved it. But it was <laughs> Vincent, his first reaction was, how the hell are you going to do that? 
And then once we explained it to him, loved it, and we we got to have our three faces of Foley in the match. Uh, I thought it was a good idea to have the three faces of Foley. Whose idea was that? That was something Pat and I came up with because w- what happened is we had a talent roster, and on the talent roster you had uh, Mankind, you had Dude Love, and you had Cactus Jack. So I'm thinking, well, shit. We should have all three of them. Wouldn't that be great? And Pat starts laughing. Oh, my God, you could have all three. And we started playing with it and then pitched the idea, and, and it actually it actually stuck. So that was a fun fun little bit of that rumble. No, number 30 into the ring was Vader, and um, I, I found it kind of funny when he's marching out to the ring, knowing what we know now. Of course, I never caught this back then. Jim Ross refers to Vader as, that big old stinky grizzly bear. Exactly. Which I thought I think was hilarious. The other the other great JR line from the Royal Rumble is when Jim Cornette and Jeff Jarrett came out and attacked Owen Hart. Said, oh, Jim Cornette is a stain on the underwear of life. Oh, fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Uh we get down to the final nitty gritty here and three of the final or four of the final dudes here. Our dude love, which is a sign that, hey, they got a lot of confidence in Mick. He's going to be a player. Uh, Farouk and, and Farouk is eliminated by the rock. Obviously that's showing you that, hey, we're going to continue to advance this nation of domination dissension storyline. And we're, our last two are the rock and stone cold. Little did we know that later that year, the rock would be the world champion. And here we would be. Is it always a good rule of thumb that? If you're in that final four or final two, that that's where, sort of where the company sees you as a top guy. Cause this felt like a real, uh, coming out party for the rock here. Well, obviously the last guys in, in the ring, you want to have the audience believe, Hey, one of these guys, you don't want them to be able to pick it. So you want them to believe that whoever's in the ring at that time can win this thing. So, yeah, you always want top guys in there. But I think we did a good job throughout this whole rumble of telling stories with the nation fighting each other and the Farouk rock story and Steve kind of overcoming the odds. And there was just a lot of fun stories throughout the night in the rumble. Um. Steve Austin won the match. He eliminated seven folks. Meltzer gives it two and a half stars. Not my favorite Rumble match ever. Where would you rank it? The top five. I love you for that. I was hoping <laughs> you'd say that. I was hoping you'd say that. Sean Michaels. Yeah, de- de- is... Definitely in my top five of Rumbles. Absolutely. I would put it up there in the top five with uh, 99, 2002, 92, 90, 89, 93, 94, 2006, 2008. Yeah, those are all my top five. Right. Next up, of course, we've got Shawn Michaels out defending his world title against The Undertaker. It's a casket match. They go 20 minutes and 37 seconds. Meltzer would write, real good work by both, Michaels in particular, Michaels looked to take one incredible bump early, taking a backdrop over the top rope and cracking his lower back on the casket as he went over. He was really lucky he wasn't hurt on that one. <laughs> Undertaker pressed him overhead and dropped him onto the floor. If you haven't seen this, uh, I recommend that you go out of your way to see it. Uh, this is a really, really good match. I enjoyed every time these guys worked, but it's three and a half stars. Uh, eventually, you know, we're going to get lots of, craziness and interference um 
they do they do a double casket spot, which you know you could be critical of, but at one point, China knocks down the ref, and then the Los Periquas and the New Age Outlaws hit the ring and all begin Undertaker attacking the Undertaker. Kane comes out and everybody's ready for him to defend the Undertaker based on what we saw in Raw, and his music plays. He does clean house. An explosion was supposed to go off to set the stage for turning on Taker, but there was a screw-up on the spot, according to Meltzer. And Kane turned on him and punched him and kicked him a few times before choke-slamming him into the casket, and then Michaels shut the lid for the easy victory. So what do you think about, and Meltzer would write, after all the punishment both men had received, Kane's offense should have been more brutal, at least delivering a tombstone when it came to finishing Undertaker off. Paul Bear, who had kept off the road for a few weeks to build drama for his return, prompting a million ridiculous rumors, came out and locked the casket, and then Kane took an axe and started chopping away. They poured gasoline all over it, and then Paul Bear lit it on fire as the show went off the air. The match itself was really good, but really taken down by the finish. Three and a half stars. Lot to cover. Let's talk about the match itself. I thought it was a great match. I'm not talking about the bump or the finish. What did you think? I thought it was an excellent match, and I wrote down why Shawn Michaels is, in my opinion, probably the greatest worker ever. When you watch the little tiny things that Shawn does in the match, how he positions himself in in the ring and how he positions himself for his opponent, little things like grabbing to throw someone into the corner – it's logical and you don't notice it as much with Sean and you notice how other guys do it where it may look like a work and it doesn't look natural. It's all natural with Sean because he puts himself in the right positions. I just was blown away by that. And that speaks to both guys, Taker and Sean was off the chart here and the match itself. Excellent on all fronts. Uh, a great story. They had some good spots we talked about how hard it is to have a false finish in a casket. They had a great false finish with Taker in the casket and Sean standing over him with the DX sign. And Taker, instead of going for a choke, grabbed Sean by the nuts and threw him back into the ring. But um, top to bottom, great. I love that Meltzer talks about a screwed up spot with Kane's entrance. Again, this is somebody who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. There was no screwed-up spot at all. We didn't do pyro there. We didn't do an explosion there because of what we were setting up for at the end with the fire at the and the casket at the end. Um, I, th- I thought it told great stories on all fronts. It made Sean, you know, the champion. He got by with the title, holding on, as a great heel champion does. And uh, here comes Kane. The turn at the end, fuck you, big brother, and you're done. Say goodbye. Um, we want to hear about the magic. Show us how the sausage is made. How did you guys do the uh, the fire at the end? Well, that's where we learned at the at the very end. <laughs> the trick to to have that biggest, you know, we did it. We had several caskets there, and we we tried to do it to see what it would look like, and it just didn't look good. But do you know if you mix kerosene and gasoline that you can get that big explosion and you can get the the long-burning effect like we had on there? I did not know that. Yeah, well, that's a little secret next time you want to burn a casket on uh, national television. that It helps. And the 
the people, the fire marshals, the one who actually gave us that idea. And they, you know, they were obviously concerned how close we were to the people and, and things like that. But the whole idea behind chopping the casket up was so that there was air so the fire could breathe and pouring the, the mixture of the gasoline and the kerosene and all that inside the casket just really helped to make that damn thing burn and explode and look beautiful as we got out of it on TV. So, you know, I've got to ask, I assume that the undertaker slides out of the ring somehow. It's magic. Come on, Bruce. I can't give away. I can't give away the magic. It's magic. Bruce, you haven't revealed shit on this episode. God damn it. Do it for the fans. Let's do it. Where does undertaker go? He mysteriously disappeared because he's the Undertaker. The uh, actually, I'm trying to think of how this one this one worked. No, I think we just burned him in the casket and, and got him put out and had we put Sav on him in the back. No, there's a little trap door on the side. Roll out when it's time. That's why we lock the when you lock the casket. Well, um, the axe chopping on top, is that just to make sure that Kane then has a visual that Undertaker actually did get out and they're not going to accidentally set him on fire? <laughs> that was a good idea, yeah, definitely. But also the, the main the main reason, yes, if he had not been able to get out and he saw him in there, we definitely would have, would not have set him on fire. Well, I know that, but, but I'm asking. Yeah, but no, but yeah, the, the, main, the main reason was to give it oxygen. Okay. Give the fire oxygen. Okay, all right. Um, this is not something that you're allowed to do. You can't just go set a fucking giant fire in a building like this. You guys no. had, had a very specific square there. Hypothetically, did you have to get with some sort of building commissioner and take him for a walk beforehand? Well, we had to get with the fire marshal to make sure that he approved it since we were uh, setting things on fire in an enclosed space in the city of San Jose. Yeah. And, and they were in this particular fire marshal was extremely cool. And he's the one that kind of helped us with the concoction and, and is the one who came up with the idea of, uh, putting the hole in the casket to give it. And he felt that even made it safer. If we can make it bigger, it'll be safer. Well, no, cause it contained it because the walls weren't going to burn out. But you could make that fire inside of the damn thing and make it look bigger. Right. Well, there's been, uh, I mean, I guess the real reason we're here is to talk about Mike Tyson, to talk about this fire, and to talk about the back injury. So let's do that. Um, there's been lots of rumor and innuendo that Sean really wasn't that hurt here. And it's kind of funny seeing Meltzer right. He's lucky he wasn't hurt there. Here's what Sean has said about the match. Two days later, we were shooting vignettes in Davis, California, and I felt a stabbing pain in my lower back. I flew home that Wednesday, and when I woke up Thursday morning, I couldn't move. It felt like there was a hot, searing knife tearing through my back. I'd never felt so much pain in my life. I couldn't stand up, so I rolled out of bed. My phone was a few feet away from my bed, but I couldn't get to it. I could reach the cord, so I grabbed it and pulled the phone to me. I dialed up my parents and said, I can't move. I need somebody to come get me to the hospital. They called an ambulance and came right over to the house. With my arms and legs dragging lifelessly behind me, I started crawling towards the front door. It was probably 10 yards from my room to the door, and my folks left 20 minutes away, and they beat me to the door. The ambulance soon came afterwards, and the EMTs put me on a stretcher and took me to the hospital. 
Once there, they shot me up with Demerol and took an MRI, and then they told me I had a couple of herniated discs and one was completely crushed. He gave me a bunch of pills and sent me home, and I called Vince and told him what was going on. Um, what are we going to do? He asked. Sean allegedly says, I can do WrestleMania, but I think it would be best if I could have the February pay-per-view off. This is very serious. And allegedly, Vince said, I want you to come here. I have a doctor I want you to see. Let's get a couple of opinions on it. We'll get you better for WrestleMania. That's the important thing. So Vince wanted him to go see a doctor in New York named, or the guy who treated Dennis Bird, who was the famous New York Jets lineman who had broken his neck during a game. So he flew to New York and went to see him, and the doctor examined him and said, you're through, you're never wrestle again. So he's obviously upset by that. And, um, we're off to the races, I guess. What do you remember about the injury that night? Did Sean come to the back complaining about the bump? Was he, was he hurting that night? When do you first hear Sean called from his house in San Antonio and said he can't walk? Well, I, working backwards, I remember, uh, the phone call when Sean couldn't walk and the ambulance was on the way. And his girlfriend was involved in there somewhere and his parents were upset because he couldn't walk and had been rushed to the hospital. We didn't know what the hell was going on. So once we got the word about the, the discs and everything, Vince wanted him to come up and see this doctor. And pretty much exactly, you know, as you just said, that's pretty much exactly how it went down. And we were concerned that, you know, that this was it, but that night, I think Sean's adrenaline was so much that, you know, God, he worked the rest of the match. He came back and made a comment about, man, I whacked the shit out of my back on that bump. But that was the extent of it. He just thought he whacked the shit out of his back and that it was going to be a bruise. And that was a part of it. Didn't think it was a real serious injury at that time. And obviously wasn't giving him enough problems that he couldn't do the match. Then a few days later, all hell broke loose. When the office hears, oh, he's hurt his back. Do people start to get very skeptical based on what we talked about earlier? Sean not really wanting to drop a belt. I'm not saying, and you defended it back then a few, I mean, an hour ago. But I'm just asking, were a lot of people sort of going, oh, here we go again. Yeah, and I think that's why Vince wanted him to come up and see his doctor. Probably to legitimize it and make sure that he was telling us the truth and to try and help him if he was hurt. But I think there, there were definitely skeptics. Well, the next night is uh, when things really started to take off. It's the Tyson angle. Meltzer would write, the angle, which started when a heavily booed Vince McMahon, brought an even more booed Mike Tyson and his entourage to the ring. Just when McMahon was going to make the announcement of Tyson's role in WrestleMania, Austin showed up. All right, of course, we know that Austin would challenge Tyson here, and McMahon starts flipping out. Austin winds up flipping Tyson off with both hands. Tyson shoves Austin. There's a major pull apart, and McMahon is yelling, You ruined it, damn it! Um, somewhere in here, Tyson calls Austin an F-word, and uh, we're done. Um, the hottest angle in the company history, you think, at this point? I mean, 
obviously you've got your hottest star and he's in the ring and you guys are doing something that looks like a shoot with the most controversial pay-per-view character the world's ever known. And both guys treated it like a shoot. Everybody out there treated it like a shoot. It was, it was just magic. And it was that lightning in a bottle moment where you went, Oh my God, we've got something special here. And we probably could have done everything that we did at WrestleMania off of that one moment alone. But I remember Vince coming back and going, Oh my God, that was, that was just insane. And we sat down, took our books out, and <laughs> started booking Mike and went in. And uh, JR and I went in to thank Tyson and his people. And that was a scary scene because Tyson had $10,000 in his uh, coat pocket. You go back and watch this. He, in his uh, breast pocket, had ten grand, hundred dollars bills. And it all went flying during that melee. So his people, they were all scrambling, picking up $100 bills and counting out the money in the dressing room. And Mike was a little upset at that point. Well, it's funny that um, the next day, this is so well done, the night after the Rumble, that all the media outlets are reporting it's going to be Austin and Tyson at WrestleMania. I mean, everybody's speculating that that's the plan. And this gets mainstream coverage everywhere. ESPN, Fox Sports, USA Today, the AP everybody's got it. I mean, when you wake up the next morning and see it's everywhere, everybody's got to be all smiles and high fives, right? Oh God, we were ecstatic because the, uh, I think it was, it may have been on the front page of USA today. I mean, we were everywhere. We were on ESPN. We, we were on everything. Mike Tyson was news. Steve Austin was red hot and everybody was picking this thing up. You know, Mike Tyson here was so funny because when he was at the Royal Rumble and they're interviewing him after Austin wins, uh, Austin or Tyson is putting over how much he loves Cold Stoned. And, uh, you know, when, when, when quizzed about his favorite wrestlers, he starts naming Bruno San Martino, who at this point is in like a feud with the company. But the report was that backstage, he could not hang out with the old timers enough. He loved Pat Patterson, Arnold Scotland, and, Tony Gurria and Jerry Briscoe and Sergeant Slaughter and Blackjack and all the guys, right? Oh my God. And all he wanted to do was meet Gorilla Monsoon. He, yeah, that's, that's where he was. Mike was so damn respectful and so easy to work with. He was, he was a joy to have around. So Mike got along good with everybody. Was anybody, um, combative or resistant to Mike being there once he was actually there? Not at all, man. Everybody wanted to meet him and get pictures with him and everything, but he, he wanted to meet everybody. He was, he was like a kid in a candy store. Well, it was a big deal to have Mike Tyson there. And of course we're going to cover WrestleMania 14, uh, for the anniversary coming up in a couple of months, but uh, all in all, you know, this is a pretty monumental show because you've got sort of the end of an era with LOD. Uh, you've got Mick Foley sort of coming out party with all three personas, the rocks down to the nitty gritty. Stone Cold goes over, Mike Tyson's here, and we've got a back bump that has the whole business talking. Where do you rank Royal Rumble 1998 all time? Top five. I didn't even say that. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's our new gimmick. Hey, now. you know what? I mean, it was um, really and truly the overall card and the overall presentation was 
one of the better Royal Rumbles for a total presentation because having the Tyson thing and, and just having Mike in those crowd shots made it unique and made it feel pretty damn important. Uh, let's rapid fire some questions from Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle is where you can ask questions for next week's show, Royal Rumble 1988. Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, what was the idea for the poster with a bunch of nails in Austin's head? It's very confusing. Uh, that was the old, what was it? Pinhead? Yeah. Hell the right guy, there. it just looked, it looked cool. And one of the, uh, creative services folks did that and it looked cool and Vince liked it. Chris wants no to know. No real reason. Chris wants to know, why wasn't Kane in the Rumble match? Because we wanted him to be a surprise in the Undertaker Sean match. There was speculation as to whether or not Kane was going to be a part of DX or side with Undertaker, so you wanted to keep him out. Where did you get your caskets from? Caskets are us. Um, how would Bret Hart have fit in had he stayed? You know, it could have been, frankly, it could have been Bret Hart in in that whole scenario um, with Undertaker and then going on to drop the title to Steve at WrestleMania, but we'll never really know. Uh, was there ever any thought to having Dude Love win the Royal Rumble? <laughs> no, there wasn't. Lots of questions about whether or not you think this injury really kept Sean out for four years, or maybe was that some of his stubbornness from not wanting to come back? I think it was stubbornness on Sean's part and stubbornness on Vince's part. I think Sean uh, had the time and was like, if they're going to pay me, I'm going to sit out. And I think Vince, on his part, was... If he wants to sit out, he's going to miss out on making a lot of money and being a part of this. Uh, Stuart wants to know, what was your favorite Tom Brandy match? Uh, remember that one with Sal Sincere? That was probably it. Andy wants to know, was there ever any talk between Taker and Sean of calling a different finish because of the injury? I guess the answer is no if he didn't know how bad he was hurt, right? No, and he, he worked that whole match and did everything that he needed to do. Do you think he didn't notice because of adrenaline, or was he also probably sort of self-medicating at the time already? No, it was probably adrenaline. Uh, Jared wants to know, why in the hell uh, is one of the Harris twins giving pile drivers in a Royal Rumble? Oh, my God, I saw that and about died. I have no idea. that, And it was to Terry Funk. Terry probably called it. <laughs> uh, Adam wants to know, how many times did you call 1-800-COLLECT? We'll see you next week right here for Royal Rumble 1988 on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.